Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good evening, everybody, and welcome to their episode of Kelly Outdoors. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you very much to everybody that participated in last week's show. It was uh, nothing short of amazing. The, the number of hits that show has had in the last four days has just gone off the charts. That is probably our highest, currently highest ranking show that we've had to date. Um, I just several thousands of people hitting on that thing. Uh, I don't know exactly what transpired. Everybody thought was going to happen, but it was it was an awesome show. And everybody that called in and was part of that, I really want to say thank you uh, for making it a great episode. Um, to all of our new listeners out there tonight, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the numbers. I know we've got a bunch of new people listening tonight. And, you know, this show is about the outdoors, okay? Um, and primarily my focus is hunting, fishing, that sort of thing. Um, you know, but I, I like to kind of spread the wings a little bit and go different directions sometimes. And, you know, there's a lot of things in the outdoors that we all enjoy. Different people enjoy different things, um, you know. And so, consequently, we have a wide variety of guests that come on here. Uh, I'm still looking for my first crazy base jumper that runs with the GoPro cameras. I, that's one of the guys I want to talk to <laughs> and find out what makes them tick. Um, I love watching their work. But, um, you know, we've had we've had professional fishermen on here, hunters, uh, guys that, that own companies that build boats and engines and and just all kinds of stuff and you know one of the areas that that we've delved into before and i've talked about it a couple times because in the 50 plus years that i've been on this planet um i one thing i've learned in, a, in that period of time is that i don't know anything and hardly anything at all uh about what's out there um you know we all hear stories when we're kids about this or that or whatever and a lot of times those stories have a basis of fact and a basis of truth to them. And about 18 months ago, I think, um, maybe maybe a little bit longer ago, I'm not sure. I have to look at the numbers, but um, we had one of the one of the co-hosts of Finding Bigfoot uh, come on the show and just be blunt and, and right up front with everybody. I enjoy that show, as does my son, Hunter. And uh, it's a weekly thing with us. We watch it. We enjoy it. Uh, it's great entertainment. And there's always that you know thing that you're kind of looking for to see what if. You know, um, it's thoroughly entertaining, and, and one of one of our favorite people on the show um, is Cliff Berrickman, and Cliff is our guest tonight. So, uh, Cliff, welcome to the show, bud. Hey, thanks for having me back, Kelly. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming back. I, I know you caught caught a lot of grief about coming on the first time <laughs> with nah. the publicist, ah, but um, you know what's really cool uh, about this whole thing. Um, is that a lot of times I have to deal with people, okay? Uh, I, I can't talk to the individual directly. Uh, I have to I have to go through hoops, you know, jump through hoops a lot of times. Um, when I when I tried booking Ted Nugent here not too long ago, I mean that's in the process. That's going to happen. But oh my God, the the herd of people I had to go through to finally get to the person that made those decisions was nothing short of staggering, you know. Um, and with you, it was kind of like did an email, did a text message, did a phone call, and yeah, we're here, we're happening. And I want to tell you, thank you very much. It, it that sort of accessibility uh, to the industry is is very well appreciated, and I just want to say thanks. You know. Yeah, that's no problem at all. I mean, I've done your show before, and last time we got all the permissions and stuff like that. And um, really, Animal Planet and Discovery Networks in general, who owns Animal Planet. Um, they're they're very very easy to work with and great employers in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is like they know that more more so than me being a television personality, I'm a bigfooter. 
and they allow me to do things like this quite freely. And uh, they've never um, said no to anything I've wanted to do. Um, one time they said, well, let's not do it at that date. Let's do it at another date. And, but that's as close as they've ever gotten. They're right. very, very lenient with me and very understanding of, you know, of my big footing needs, basically. And participating in the community and being a, a voice um, in the community uh, and hopefully for the species as well is important to me. So I, I, I enjoy doing opportunities like this. So thank you. Cool. Well, I appreciate you enjoying it so much. I really do. Um, just real quick, um, you know, you used to teach. You were a teacher, all right? Um, and you you taught, what was it, third grade? Uh, I've taught fourth, fifth, and sixth in my okay, life. Most of it has been fifth. Okay. Um, now, since the show has gone completely stupid on the charts, obviously you're not teaching anymore. Um, no, I'm unable to. Do you, uh, do you ever go back to the school and just say hi to some of the kids? Absolutely. I have not done so this year yet because I've been on the road more or less since school started. Um, But last year uh, I was on campus a couple times. They invited me in to uh, do a presentation for the entire school to kickstart their science fair, um, Uh which I was more than happy to do. And, you know, I I think all the teachers in the audience would certainly understand this. Uh, But once you spend 180 days with a group of young people like that, they become part of your family in a way, and you deeply care about them. So. Those students I still deeply care about. Um, I do get emails from them, and I'm always very, very careful to make sure I always write back to them. Um, and, in fact, just this past week, I got a couple emails from students I had 12 years ago um, and 10 years ago in Hawaiian Gardens, California. Um, and now some of those students are in high school or some of them are in college. Um, one, in, one in particular is in the San Francisco State University, which is where I got my teaching credential from. So. Um, I, I really enjoy keeping in contact with the students that I once had, um, whether it's going back to the site and visiting or just, you know, answering emails because they trip out, they turn on the TV, and there's their fifth grade teacher, and they have uh-huh. no idea. You know, that, that, that causes a lot of smiling throughout neighborhoods that I've worked in before. <laughs> well, that's cool. I mean, I'm glad to see that you still do that. I, you know, I've I've known a lot of people that were in the teaching industry or, you know, that profession that um, – you know, they, they it was a love-hate relationship kind of a thing. They loved it, but they hated all the stuff, you know, the things that they had to deal with. Um, if it was just them and the kids, no problem. But it was them, the kids, the administration, the rules, the guidelines, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I would venture to say that except for being a politician, there is no more political job than being a teacher because you have to be aware of the politics, aware of the laws and the ever-shifting policies and pastas that come down from the state. You have to balance your students' needs, your administrators' needs, and the parents' needs, plus your own personal needs, which very often get um, lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a staggering job, uh, just just a phenomenally staggering job. That um, unless you've been in the trenches, you have no idea um, what like the the. the just what that job entails, you right? Know, just no idea at all, and which it is it, it, one of the few things that really actually borderline infuriates me is the blame that teachers get um, throughout all throughout the country. You know, teachers this, te- teachers aren't doing this, lazy teachers. So you have no freaking idea whatsoever. You know, if you don't think working ten to twelve hours a day for thirty six thousand dollars a year is you, th- you think that's lazy? It's, that's crazy is what that is. 
Right. You know, it's, it's a labor of love, and anybody right. who does not love openly and freely has no business in the classroom. Well, you've got, I mean, I, your side of it, I, I see that real well. I mean, I see that all the time. Um, the the teachers that my kids have had over the years, uh, with very few exceptions, have all been not there for the money, obviously. Um, right. And, and the perks, <laughs> it's just, it's not happening. Um, nope. And, and uh, you know, the the grief a lot of them have to deal with, especially especially the ones that also coach sports, you know. Mm-hmm. Um Oh my God! Or any so, extracurricular activity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah. But I'm just I'm thinking these people not only do they teach in this class and do this and this and this, but they also have to deal with the the sports aspect of things. And then the parents who, um, you know, grew up thinking their their kid was going to be the next star in the NBA or the NFL or NHL or whatever you know sport that may be, and uh, you know the coach try to have to balance reality versus insanity. You know, most people. Yeah. Well, by and large, most of the parents, by the vast majority of everyone involved in public education, or private too, I've never actually worked private, but um, the vast majority of everybody, the administrators, the staff, the teachers, the students, the parents, are wonderful, joyous people to be around who uh, have complimented and augmented my life in ways that I never thought possible. And there's always those few curmudgeons and stick-in-the-muds and bum-outs in general but you know, I mean, why, why let that taint an experience? You know, yeah. I know that sometimes those people stand out um, the most, but really, that's not what it's all about. Right. Well, okay. And then we're gonna venture off into into the hinterlands of, of the Bigfoot world here. Um, could you kind of give just our, our new listeners out there? I know I, I know that some of these people are folks that listen to you religiously, but there's a lot of folks that follow this show that this is all kind of weird to them. They're like, uh, <laughs> where are you going with this, Kel? You know. <laughs> so anyway, um, tell me, tell me how you got started. Tell everybody how you got started with this. Well, um, I grew up. In, yeah, I grew up in the 1970s. So being a little boy, um, watching in search of and you know, Legend of Boggy Creek and all those sort of, you know, cult classic sort of TV programs and movies um, in that time period really kind of set my. Yeah, it set my heart aflame for the subject, I guess. Um, and I've always been an eccentric weirdo, basically. So I've always been really interested in the nerdier side of things and, you know, monster movies and all that sort of stuff. And um, I never quite outgrew that. And I've always been interested in the quirkier side of life. Um, but it really wasn't until college when I, I stumbled across some um, scholarly journals written by anthropologists, both physical and cultural anthropologists, kind of outlining, uh, outlining some of the research that they've done on the subject of Sasquatches. And then it started occurring to me that, like, well, not only are these things funny and quirky and stuff, but they might be real. And so I hit the woods and been doing uh, field research ever since then, really. Um, read everything I could before I hit the woods, and I naively set out to find the Patterson-Gimlin film site in 1994 at Bluff Creek. And I've just been, you know, drowning in the subject ever since, pretty much. Huh. Now that would that would have been a, a epic an epic adventure right there because that would I mean when when that thing was filmed there'd just been a flood through there a few years before the year before so it cleared a lot of the stuff out yeah and the flood was in '64 and the film was in '67 okay so by that time 30 years later um, it was pretty much overgrown I mean could you even how did you do oh no it? I, I never found it well I've, I've been there since I know exactly where it is now but right. um, back then it was just a naive attempt and I took a map of Bluff Creek area and 
I found a tributary to Bluff, Bluff Creek called Bigfoot Creek, and I said, well, maybe they named it that because that's where the film was, and I went there. Right. Um, oddly enough, that's not why they named it that. They named it that because the local native tribe um, says that that is the tributary where the Bigfoots go to fish salmon when the salmon are running up the creeks. Um, so that that one spot has uh, is named after Bigfoots for an entirely different yet equally Bigfooty reason. Okay. Well, you know, you mentioned the natives. Okay. Um, it's been my observation over the course of time that where there is a native history of an animal, okay, there's generally a basis in fact for that history to be there, all right? Um, I mean, the Indians of the of the Pacific Northwest, they had their stories. Uh, the Seminoles of Florida, they had their stories. Um, the, the tribes that got relocated to the Indian territories in the 1800s, um, they created new stories about people that they found there. Um, have you ever heard or come across uh, well, stories of these creatures, non-native stories, of these creatures in areas where, they, where they've been seen by people, but there's been no native history of them? You understand what I'm no. saying? Okay. No. Um, wherever I go, um, the, the natives there who were there before us, um, people of, of other descent, basically, whether it's European or African or wherever, um, the natives there know of the creatures, whether they have... Um, stories of them or not. And I'll take the Apaches as an example. Um, next week, we, uh, in, in, our, in the Finding episode, if I'm sorry, Finding Bigfoot episode that's coming out on Sunday, we go to Arizona. And while we're there, we're, we, we spoke at length to the Apaches um, in the area and actually even helped us out with some of the scenes. But um, one of the things they told us is that, yeah, we all know they're there, but interestingly enough, in the Apache lore, there's no stories or songs, at least none that these gentlemen and uh, women had heard of about Bigfoots in particular, but they all acknowledge that Sasquatches are there. Um, mm-hmm. So e- the absence of stories, like, like like what you'd have of you know Zanak or the Bukwas up in the Pacific Northwest, or you know the Hairy Man uh, story that you find in a truly Indian reservation that was featured on last week's Finding Bigfoot. Um, even though stories like that might be absent, that doesn't mean that the knowledge, the native knowledge, is absent. Um, and, mm-hmm. and there's because so many of their stories, frankly, probably have not persisted. I mean, now the Apaches are a thriving tribe. Um, I, there's, they speak language. Uh, they're not one of the tribes that the language is getting ready to go extinct or anything. Um, their, their culture is strong and vibrant. But yet, even the elders that we spoke to said, "Yeah, it's real interesting that we don't really have stories of them, but we all know about them." You know, Grandma told me about them when I was just a kid, and. And they all they had stories like oh they saw one here or it's a you know it's a being that can do this or that and stuff but there's no stories about Bigfoot interacting with coyote and whatnot like there are sometimes is in other um, in other uh, cultural groups of Native Americans across the continent. Okay, were these by any chance the White Mountain Apache? Um, they are not the White Mountain Apache. We were further west from there. Um, I don't think they are. At least. I believe that they designate themselves, as, even though as Apaches, as a different. Um, I don't know if they call it a tribe or you know a different a different lineage, I guess. Okay. But from my knowledge, if, if I remember correctly, the White Mountain Apaches, who I've dealt with before, I, I've done an expedition on the reservation a number of years ago. Um, are, they live further to the east than the people that we um, were interacting with, and there's a slight um, differentiation in the way they view themselves. If I remember right, I could be wrong about that. 
that was almost a year ago now, but that's that's my recollection. Okay. Okay. Um, of all of the episodes that you've done so far, this is your this is going on your third season, right? I don't know. Seasons are really more determined by the accounting office at Discovery Network. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I know that it's hard to say. I, I think that this might be considered the third season, but I think they're also real careful not to say season three of Tiny Bigfoot because when seasons happen, you know, production companies get raises and there's boosts in um, budgets and things like that. Uh, ah. So I don't know what they're calling this one, but I think this is the third chunk of them that's been on. The third chunk of <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to say. I mean, yeah, uh, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't have that much knowledge. That's third chunk of them. That, that's a that's an industry term from here on out. Chunk of them. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say is your favorite episode so far? The Australia one, probably. Um, Australia, which has not aired yet, it's going to be a two-hour special. Um, is what was it's just a phenomenal um, experience in general. Um, we went there kind of wondering if Bigfoots and Yowies, which is what they call them over there, were the same critter or not. And uh, we get over there and, and we learn a lot about Yowies in general, you know, because uh, there are researchers over in Australia doing this sort of stuff, but they seem to be behind the learning curve. Um, and I don't mean that as an arrogant sort of thing, and but they got started later than their North American counterparts have. Um, so we've, we figure some things out in North America that, in my opinion, they haven't really got around to figuring out in Australia, like they're not really dangerous. Because so many Yowie stories have to do with Yowies killing people and eating people and, like, like scary, horrible stuff that used to be talked about in North America but really isn't spoken of like that anymore. And uh, I finding that, I'm finding that the, 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 our Australian counterparts, the Bigfooters or the Yowieers, I guess, in, in Australia – very, very intelligent people who are very, very earnest in what they do and do great science in general for the most part um, are picking up our our tricks and stuff that we use in North America and applying it there, and it's working. Um, okay. So they're just a little bit behind the learning curves compared to what we've been doing in North America, but they got started later as well. Right. Um, I was very so was there a history uh, uh, yes. from the Aborigines of these things? Absolutely, tens of thousands of years old. And again, okay. it's one of those things, just like in North America, like the Aboriginal guys over there say, "Yeah, you don't believe in Yowies? Well, all right, whatever, man. You don't, you don't know about the." I said this earlier in the day, actually, to somebody like you. You don't know their their attitude is, you don't know about the fastest, smartest, coolest thing in the woods, and you're telling us how to manage our fisheries, please. You know, and that's kind of the attitude over there too. It's like the the native people over there, the Aboriginals. So yeah, they're real. We know that they haven't caught on yet, but that's good for the Yowies. Right. Okay. Well, I'm just—I was just checking to see because you know, like I said, um, anytime I've I've looked at a history of, of a people or you know from the uh, anthropology side of things, you know, if there's no history of these things there in in the in the history of the people, the spoken stories handed down, whatever from grandmother to grandson, whatever, then it's probably a pretty safe bet that there's no history of them there. Period. You know. No, no, they're absolutely there. They have songs okay. about them. They're, I believe there's pictographs there. We didn't get a chance to see them, but um, I was told about pictographs that um, uh, are probably more than 10,000 years old. Like, they have a, a tremendous history of these things there. Um, and, and it was just such a phenomenal expedition and trip and experience. Um, we got we got rec- recordings. To my knowledge, the first, I could be wrong, but to my knowledge, the first recordings of Yowie vocalizations um, 
I interacted with one for a while. And it, it was a, just a phenomenal experience that um, I think that when people see the episode, they're just going to go, wow, that's something. Did you get a chance to actually see it, or it was just you could no. tell where it was at? No, no. We got real close, though, real close. Wow. It was great. It was really cool. exciting. It, hey, it was probably the, the number one trip that I can talk about. So, Well, that would be, I mean, going to Australia would be totally cool. I mean, I've got some folks in, in uh, New Zealand that um, I've talked to on occasion about making a road trip over there and doing some bird hunting. They've got, you know, quite the quite the experience over there for hunting ducks and geese and I'm kind of into that stuff, so. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that makes for a long weekend trip. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And you want to talk about road trips? I mean, I don't know what kind of tires you're going to use to get across the Pacific. But... <laughs> Those big inflatable balloon-looking tires, like you see on mud buggies and stuff, <laughs> perhaps. But yeah. uh, well, you know, one thing, and and this is just me. And I'm not I'm not trying to be critical of anything, but you know, when I when I when I first started getting into this and, and doing this stuff and then talk to you about coming on the show, I started kind of expanding my horizons and looking at things. And and um, one of the blogs that I follow a little bit, you know, kind of keep tabs on what's going on, um, it seems like one of your counterparts, and I don't know if it's just it's the nature of the industry or if it's a personal thing, um, there seems to be a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, backbiting. You know, if, mm-hmm. if somebody else comes up with something there's there's a whole herd of people out there just wanting to jump on that person and kick them in the head until they shut up or go away. Um, because it's like, you know, if if you found something that I didn't find, then you have no credibility. Cause, you sure. Know, I mean, what is that all about? I don't know. I don't know. It seems to me that um, to be interested, and especially in a long-term sort of way, in Sasquatches, uh, John Green actually, uh, you know, most of the big footers in the audience know exactly who John Green is, um, John Green pointed out a long time ago that Bigfooters in general tend to be pig-headed, stubborn people because they continually look for something that everybody else is telling them that doesn't even exist. So you right. have to be fairly, fairly uh, what's, what's a good way to say it, confident, um, downright arrogant sometimes to continue the search in this. And, and, and I fall into that category as well because I know I'm right and I'm, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I know Bigfoots are real, period. So nobody else really matters. I don't care. Um, but because of that, when you get a bunch of strong-willed, I know I'm right kind of people together in one community, there's going to be a lot of friction because there's a lot of ego involved. And um, a lot of people uh, in this field, in my opinion, are, are maybe more interested in in uh, being known for something than perhaps the creature's well-being, for example. Um, right. Like uh, a lot of people say, oh, I, I'm in this to, to uh, further the knowledge of Sasquatches and to have them acknowledged as a species. Um, they want the species discovered. Yeah, okay, but I think a lot for a lot of people, they want to be the one, and it's really more about that. Or I want to have a big say in this and be a big name in this because it's a small community and it's possible or something. Um, and I, I guess maybe, and I'm just guessing, of course, and I'm certainly not a sociologist, and I'm, you know, and I may need one, but I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> um, so I don't exactly know what's going on in other people's minds, but it seems to me that there's a fair amount of ego and spouting of vitriol around. Maybe it doesn't need to be there. Maybe we'd be better off if we all kind of work together instead. Um, but, you know, I'm on TV, so my neck is pretty far out there, and every day I get some sort of weird email um, or some sort of negative something directed my direction. Uh, so I kind of turn a blind eye. I don't go surfing on the blogs, really, because I don't seek abuse. 
Um, And I know that stuff's out there. I just try to do the best work I can and to let my own work stand for itself. And if they want to criticize my work, by all means. Um, I put my numbers out. You can run your numbers. If you get different results or whatever, that's great. Let me know about it. Um, But try not to criticize me because I'm not going to listen. I don't care. Um, I think my work stands on its own and all that other stuff, well, that's just part of being a public figure in some ways. And I, I do my best to ignore it. You know, I'm a sensitive guy. I don't want my feelings hurt by something, by somebody. And and uh, and it's, it's a little difficult, of course, but I, I do kind of reel myself back in and hang out with close friends who knew me and liked me before TV. Um, and that always helps a little bit. But, yeah, oh, it's yeah. an ugly, nasty community at times. But at the same time, it's, we're all just one big dysfunctional family. So... You know, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for anonymity. You know, yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't see the point, man. Uh, You know, so this person did something and you don't agree with it. Okay, tell me why. That's great. Let's have a discussion about it instead of that guy's a jerk. Don't believe him. That doesn't get us anywhere, right? Well, you know, the one episode that I the the one I was gonna say the the one episode where I thought that was like most prevalent. You know, from what I saw, um, was when you guys were up in Canada, and I don't remember the gentleman's name. I do remember that it was raining. He was standing there soaking wet. Is his name right? I don't. I don't know anything about the guy. He was just showing some video, and you guys were watching some video, and I mean, it was like one of your counterparts didn't even wasn't even um, polite enough to say, you know, I just I don't really see that as being a possibility. That's a fake. You, you, that that's fraud. You know, just kind of like bluntly like that, and it was kind of like, dude. You know? <laughs> there's there's enough there's enough horse crap going on uh, out there with with some of these films and these videos that it's brutally obvious that they're fakes. You know, but but to say that to somebody, you know, right there on camera is just a little bit, I don't know, not real cool. But well, you know, uh, that that gentleman isn't exactly known for the way he handles people with children or with, with kids gloves. Right. Um but at the same time, you know, Todd Standing has a long reputation, um and a, a somewhat dubious one at that. Um but for whatever it's worth, meeting Todd in per- person was great. I really like the guy. I mean, I, his whether or not his films are real, I don't know, and I, I don't know enough about them to comment. Um they look possible but some of them don't look very possible to me. Um, but, at, but at the same time, but take, take his films out of the equation, and I very much like what Todd is doing. He's drawing, subject, uh, he's drawing attention to the subject, advocating for protection for the species, um, and he seems to be a rather kind-hearted gentleman, you know, who I, I liked, you know. I enjoyed my time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know much about his films, you know, like I said, uh, but leaving his films out of the equation, I don't have any problem with Todd. Um, if Todd is trying to pull hoaxes, I have problems with that. Um, and some of his films don't look... And I asked him, like, if these are real, why do they look like a Muppet? And he goes, I don't know. I, I think it had something to do with the lens of the camera, was his response. And maybe that's the truth. I don't know. Um, but I do like what Todd said to me that day. I do like his continual efforts to do something good for the species. And, and I know he's got something going, I guess, or he's been talking about doing something with Les, Les Stroud, the Survivor Man guy. Right. Um, he does get attention in rather flamboyant ways at times, like when he um, petitioned the Canadian Parliament for protection for the species. Um, but, you know, whatever. whatever. It's just, I, as far as I'm concerned, I enjoyed meeting him. Um, I enjoyed my time in Alberta, Canada. 
And other than that, I'll just sit back and watch the circus and not get involved. Right. Good plan. Is there is what what's the motivation for these people that are out there faking some of this this stuff? Is it so they can continue to get funding for expeditions or? No, 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 no. I imagine the the reasons are as varied as the hoaxers themselves. Um, right. Some I think some people do it for the attention. Some people try to capitalize on it and make some money on it. Um, other people are just psychopaths and they just have a need for that that sort of negative inputs and feeling like they have one up on other people. Um, I think some people try tried to perpetrate hoaxes to fool the experts to prove that they can do it. Um, I think other people are just wrong, and their hoaxing um, is just a misidentification, um, so it's really no fault of their own. I, I think that there's a huge variety of reasons people hoax or um, are found out to be frauds in whatever reason, whatever um, facility. But I don't know. You'd have to ask them, and half of them wouldn't admit it anyway. <laughs> You're not going to get a hoaxer to admit that he's a hoaxer, right? <laughs> Sometimes, but very rarely, very rarely. Few people have the guts to stand up and say, yeah, I, I pulled that off, and I, I'm, I'm happy or I'm sad I did it or whatever. But very yeah. few people ever stand up and say, yeah, I did that. They usually stand up and say, that was done to me. It wasn't me. Like, again, just alleviating themselves of responsibility which is more of a psychopathic sort of tendency, in my opinion. You know, if you look up, you know, psychopathy in, in you know, in some sort of like a psychiatric journal, you learn a lot about why some people do crazy things, and I think hoaxing might fall into some of those categories at times. Huh. Well, you know, the guy that that really stands out to me um, through all of this is when you look at the Patterson film, okay? And I saw that when I was a kid. All right. Um, it came to the theaters. Right, and my dad took my little brother and I to go see it, and then years later, th- this good old boy from up there in Yakima or wherever it was, decided he was going to cash in on the deal and tell everybody he was the man in the suit. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I through the years I've seen him pictures of him, uh, pictures of the suit allegedly that he wore. Um, there was a show on where it showed him walking down the street with that that little walk of his that was supposed to be just like the one in the movie. And, you know, I'm I'm not a trained scientist. I have no clue. Um, but you could tell there was just, you know, I'm sorry, there's just no way that you were part of that. I mean, trying to claim that something was a hoax so he got in on the deal, yeah. you know, kind of a thing, his his claim to fame. Um, yeah. Buy him a beer and he'll tell you the story kind of a deal. You know, I'm a, I don't know sure. how many beers that accounted for over the years, but... Um, there was just no way he could replicate, you know. Uh, well, he just he couldn't replicate the gate. The, the no, walk. no, you're talking about Bob Hieronymus and the Greg right. Long or yeah, Greg Long book. Um, that really was kind of a case of shoddy journalism, in my opinion. Um, a lot of the people he quoted and stuff felt that they were misquoted, um, and I know that because friends of mine interviewed those same people later, and they said they were very upset how they were portrayed in the book. Um, and then, of course, the Bob Hieronymus thing. You know, I said, well, I passed a lie detector test. I was the one in the suit. He said, well, yeah, but you know what? I, I know a little bit more about Roger Patterson's history than that. I do know that he was making a documentary, and um, and, he, and it's, he also very likely had somebody dressed up as a Bigfoot for recreations. Maybe that's where Bob Hieronymus is telling the truth, um, that Bob was the guy in that suit for this thing. But um, he certainly isn't Patty, the, the subject of the Patterson-Gimlin film. Um, that is... 
very, very well established. Um, Bob Veronimus had no idea where the Patterson-Gimlin film site is. He was off by 20 miles, actually more than 20 miles. Um, he gave two two locations. One was about five miles north of Willow Creek, and the other one was uh, about 20 miles from the site, but along uh, Bluff Creek itself. Um, and both, he would definitely remember how hard it would be to get to the film site, especially on the dirt roads in 1967. Um, so I, I think that Bob Veronimus's claim to be the Patterson Gimlin film subject has been thoroughly and well debunked. There, it holds no water whatsoever. Okay. Um, and of course, uh, and, and very, very telling is in that uh, National Geographic special that shows Bob walking around like that um, and trying to duplicate the walk. When his right hand trails behind, he does like an OK symbol with his fingers because in a couple of the clearer frames, that's what you see. That, well, that's what you. It appears that Patty's hands are doing, but actually, that's an aberration on the film. That's uh, a scuff on the film negative itself. Um, on the the original, it is, that's in better condition. And not the original original, because that one's been uh, misplaced right now. But the best copies that are available, you don't see that mark. But yet he was trying to duplicate the walk by studying the film, and he thought that the hands did that, when actually it was just um, an aberration on the negative itself. Okay. Well, you know, there were so many things about that film that once it got out there and it was second and third and fourth generation, um, it was hard to pick up the detail. But when I saw... The first generation, you know, and it was and it was enhanced. Um, there was there was you know people talk about the muscle structure, you know, underneath the skin, and there was obviously something on the right leg that um, I don't know if it was a contusion of some sort, but you could see where it would dimple in and dimple back out when she walked. And they did it; they slowed it down, sped it up, slowed it down, and you could actually see where it looked like there'd been an, an injury or something on the right leg, and it and obviously it was healed up, but the muscle right there had still you could see where there was something there, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that that, and the fact that, you know, who in their right freaking mind would have thought of, hey, let's put breasts on this thing, you know? Right. I mean, that's just like, who who would, you know? Who, who well, there's so many other reasons, too. Uh, the way it walks is very, very efficient and natural, very difficult for humans to replicate that. Um, you can see structures in the foot, like the um, the the, the, um, the flexibility in the mid part of the foot. Um, you can see that in the film, like uh, the way that she raises her the, the foot, and before it lays down, the toes bend way far up and then slap down. Yeah, that, that's that was determined in footprint evidence, but yet there's visual um, representation of it in the film itself. Um, the elongation of the heel, which was predicted by Dr. Grover Krantz after doing a bone reconstruction of the cripple foot cast. Um, that's visible in the film. And it's also been uh, replicated, or not replicated, but um, found in other footprint tracks, like the Scoopland body cast, for example. Um, there's all these things in the film that have either been predicted at other places and times based on other evidence, or uh, seen there for the first time and found in other occasions. Um, the film is phenomenal. It stands on its own merits. Um, it's not a hoax. It's the real deal. That's a wild Bigfoot in Northern California. Yeah, I believed it. I mean, when I first saw it, I, I there was no doubt in my mind when I was a kid. And my dad's like, we're walking out of the place. I said, Dad, what'd you think? He goes, looked real to me. <laughs> you know? And uh, a, a friend of the family, his name was Jack Bell. He's passed away now too, but uh, he was with us. And he goes, Bob, seriously, you really think that thing's real? And Dad says, well, it didn't look like anybody in a suit to me. You nope. know. And, uh, and the my dad. The, 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 the best Hollywood makeup artists at the time were making um, Planet of the Apes that same year. Exactly. Look at the Planet of the Apes costumes and compare it to Patty. 
It, it, yeah. There, there's no comparison whatsoever. And that's exactly. state-of-the-art Hollywood at that moment. Absolutely. And, you know, my dad grew up in, in, in Minnesota, and during the summer months when he was out of school, um, he would drive a lumber truck, you know, from way up north, I mean, up by the Canadian border. And um, my, my dad seemed very interested in that particular subject matter. He never said what he thought about it or if he'd ever had anything like that run across earlier in his life when he was a kid. But um, he got out of Minnesota when he was 17 years old. He uh, enlisted in the Army when Pearl Harbor got bombed and ended up spending the next four years in the South Pacific, you know, doing other stuff. But, you know, that was my first experience with that. And then I found a book by Ivan Sanderson, um, and I, I read that from cover to cover. And, God, that was some tedious reading for a seventh-grade kid. But I just oh, yeah. ate that stuff up, you know. Um, and that was one of the things that my my thing on this is, here's my deal. You know, um, there's either a whole lot of people, and this is before the social networking, okay, before Facebook and YouTube and iChat and whatever that other crap is. Um, these people were either wanting to get a lot of uh, attention, and most of it was very bad after it came out, or there was a lot of people actually seeing something, and they were talking about it because they needed to talk about it to kind of, you know, pacify those demons, uh, their own their own doubts and whatever. Um, people took a tremendous risk coming forward with some of these stories, you know. Um, people, policemen, uh, politicians, firemen, uh, people, I mean, people, uh, ministers, I mean, I, they run the gauntlet of people that have seen these things that have got everything to lose for, for telling their story. You know, and I know you've come across those people. I mean, some have been on your show where they want to get their, you know, their features. They don't want to have, people don't want to, you know, they don't want them to know who they are. Um, and I guess that's, yeah, absolutely correct. I mean, the, the, by and large, most everybody we speak to, not everybody, of course, but most everybody we speak to has everything to lose and absolutely nothing to gain just by sharing their story. The vast majority of the witnesses that we have on the show don't even get paid. They're not doing this for all the, like different reasons like the people suspect, you know. And, again, it goes down to the vitriol that's being spouted about online and whatever because it's easy to hide behind anonymous handles on forums and, you know, comment boards and stuff. But they say, oh, they're doing this for this reason or that reason or they're evil because of this reason or that reason or whatever it is, you know, because that's kind of what it comes down to. They're bad people for this reason, um, no matter what the details are. That's simply just not the case. And most of those witnesses are just happy to share their story with somebody who's going to believe them um, because they've kept it to themselves for so long. Um Sometimes they share it. You know, you get the strong-willed individuals that don't really care what other people think, and they go ahead and tell whoever. But a lot of times, on several occasions, we've spoken to people that the only other person they'd ever told was their spouse, and right. they weren't even sure they were believed then. And they're just happy to speak to somebody who's going to listen to them. Um, and, and really, being a Bigfoot investigator, uh, sometimes I feel like a counselor almost, um, people call back later and say, Cliff, I just want to let you know that I, I really feel better now like a month later. Or, or, hey, I'm interested in the subject. And they, they want to pursue it more, and it kind of changes their life, just sharing their story with someone like myself. And, and that's right. kind of nice in some ways. And sometimes it's, it, it could be a plague, depending on how, what the person's doing with, with themselves, I guess. But, um, <laughs> you know, by and large, it, it's a really neat thing to see how uh, Bigfoot affects people in various ways. Oh my God, Cliff's got groupies. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. 
I know. It's what you always wanted, you know, back when you were a kid. You wanted to be up there on the stage and all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, that Chinese proverb, be careful, or saying, be careful what you wish for, you know? Well, yeah, yeah. Know. But then, no, but, it's, a, it's like everything. It's a blessing and a curse, you know? Oh, like yeah. Everything is that way. Absolutely everything. And uh, I'm wise enough to try to focus on the blessings um, right. as opposed to the dark side of it. And there's plenty of both. But, you know, what, what do I want to spend my time focusing on is really the question. Right. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned the Arizona show, the Arizona episode, the Australian episode. Um, is, can you mention any of the others without violating some confidentiality? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, let's see. We, we, um, Michigan, we, we're, we went to Michigan for this coming season. That's, that's being aired right now. Um, and that, that's a great episode. We got some great things recorded there. Um Let's see, Washington has not been aired yet. I just saw Washington again the other day. I um, have to do those pop-ups um, for the repeats now. We're doing little pop-ups with our faces where right. we, you know, say little snarky things and stuff. Um, so I had to finish that up the other day. So I rewatched the Washington episode, which is cool. We used uh, state-of-the-art technology from FLIR Corporation. FLIR is a company that makes thermal imagers. It's the, they're the ones that we use on the show. And um FLIR, just a great company located here in Portland, Oregon, so I'm building a relationship with them. and We invited them out with their, like, basically their, um, I don't even know how to say it, like, their, they have this RV that's set up with these amazing thermal imagers in it that are basically one level under military-grade stuff. Um, and we got to use their toys for one of our night investigations um, where we can see um, this technology is literally, like, right underneath military-grade you can not only detect but fully make out uh, a human-shaped object, human-sized and shaped object at six miles away. It's it's just phenomenal technology, and we got to play with that for an evening in the woods. So that that's going to be a great episode. Um, of course, we went to Australia, like I mentioned, but immediately after Australia, we um, hopped over some water and went to Sumatra in search of the Orang Pendek. So uh, Very that cool. was a pretty great episode. Now that that, that place has real honest to god serious jungle. <laughs> oh yeah. Absolutely. I spent 3 nights in uh, in, the, in the jungle on a solo expedition there. It was it was nutty in a tiger preserve. It was I'll phenomenal. Bet Bobo experience. never complains about the Minnesota mosquitoes again as long as he lives after that, Willie. <laughs> Sumatra was um a very unkind trip um in a lot of ways cuz the tropics mm. are not exactly a relaxing place to vacation. No. No, everything in those, everything in that jungle looks beautiful, but keep in mind it, it, it is designed to sting you, bite you, poison you, kill you, eat you, cause you to rot. Um, I've missed Pretty much. Thing. Yeah, it's, that's that's what jungles do. You know, they're <sighs> I yeah. Anyhow, yep, the jungles of Sumatra, awesome place, awesome place. It was amazing, amazing, but but very very grueling trip. Yeah. Okay, so what? What are anything else? This the, in this cluster. Chunk. Oh gosh, I just can't remember where. Uh, we already showed the Oklahoma one, I guess. Right. I don't know. See, my my head's spinning with it all right now because after this series that we're showing now, um, like we're already filming the season after that. I'm on a one week break right now, so I've already been on the road since August filming the next run. So the um, next chunk. And, uh, yeah, the next chunk, I guess, next season. Because <laughs> I don't know about that stuff. We got it. We got to stick to industry terms here. <laughs> yeah, so the, my, my head is kind of swimming with all the places we've been. So I can't, I'm not even sure where else 
Oh, I guess New Mexico. That was a good one. Um, okay. Did a, got the crash land in a hot air balloon. That was pretty phenomenal. Um, yeah, just fun adventures in every turn, I guess. <laughs> uh, great. Well, you know what? Of all the places you've gotten to go so far, I mean, since from the beginning of the of the series to the present, what's the one place that you wish you could just chuck the crew and go back by yourself with one other person just to just to really get serious and try to find one of these because you and I both know when you're traipsing around with with a film crew and a sound crew and I mean I mean it's like a school bus coming down the road you know um mm-hmm. what one place would you like to go back to let's just say you and and uh William beardless William go back to and and, and hang out for a while um Tyler is who I think you're referring to. Tyler yeah, William Tyler. Bounds is yeah. Um, probably, gosh, I don't know. Probably Australia again, because uh, Australia was phenomenal because it's a beach culture with Bigfoots right inside, uh, right inside in the mountain range. Um, so it, it was it was it was the beginning of their winter when we were there, but at the same uh-huh. time it was like 75 degrees and the water was 70 degrees and and yeah, there's leeches and googly googlies in the in the woods and stuff, but. The, but the, all of the Yowies there are virgins, as we call them. Like they've never been footed before, so they don't know the tricks. You know, they're not on. They're not wise yet um, to the ways of bigfooters. So I think they're very, very accessible there. Um, did you say oogly booglies? Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, oogly booglies. Yeah, just like little creepy crawlies that bite and sting and do all those things you mentioned earlier. Okay. You know that like infest your intestines and make you unpleasant. To, to oh. You indeed were an elementary school teacher. <laughs> yes, I guess I was. I'm still am in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, that's that's classic elementary school teacher lingo right there. Yeah, my, my, <laughs> my class size increased from 30 to 1.3 million. <laughs> is that what your weekly uh, viewership is now? Um, I, I think the runs themselves get like 800,000 or 900,000, and then if you add in all the TVOs and repeats for the rest of the week, it, it's somewhere in there, I think, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. It's absolutely yeah, crazy. crazy. Now, did you? But everybody loves Bigfoot, so it makes sense. Well, they do. Even and I found this out in my own little little way, having a conversation with somebody not too long ago. That even the people that will sit there and say, "Oh, you're crazy for believing this. There's nothing to it. It's all bullcrap." You know, yada yada yada. You know, they'll be having a conversation, and a little bit later on, they kind of kind of slow down a little bit, and you're just talking about some different things, and and uh, you kind of go, "Well, why are you?" so convinced that these things don't exist. And once the bluster's gone, they really can't give you a good reason, you know. Mm-hmm. And um there was a guy, he told me this, it wasn't it didn't actually happen to him, but a friend of his and they were from Missouri. Um actually he was from Kentucky and his friend was from Missouri. They were talking and you know, his friend said, oh, there ain't nothing to that, it's just a bunch of crap and blah, 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 blah and he got he got really irate about it. I mean he just got real indignant about it and later on the guy apologized. He said, you know, he goes, I just had kind of a weird experience when I was a kid. I got teased a lot about it, and I don't even like talking about it. Turns out the kid was coming home from school, and, uh, you know, he lived in the hill country in Kentucky, and he was coming down coming down the road, minding his own business, heading, heading home to school, and this thing stepped out in the road in front of him, scared the bejesus out of him, and he told his mom and dad, and, of course, they told him not to tell anybody. Well, he did, and he was ridiculed, you know, for a long time mm-hmm. after that about seeing things and uh that's what it was i mean the guy you know he he just kind of i guess lashed out at the, at the demons from his past to try to you know whatever but yeah i think that's by and large what most people are doing um whether they're spouting vitriol on on message boards online 
or confronting people and saying that I don't believe you're a liar or or making fun of you for saying what you believe. I think that most people only see themselves um, and they're lashing out at some something in themselves that they're probably uncomfortable about on some level. Uh, and that's where most of the unpleasant human-like activities come from, you know, especially right. like inner, inner, inner um, uh, like, like societal things, you know. Uh, I'm looking for a word and I can't quite find it, but, you know, interpersonal relations. You know, people are just upset about something and they got to take it out on somebody else for for whatever reason, you know. Right. But well, again, you know, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, so. Yeah. Well, can you... You know, with with the advent of the show, I mean, there was there were several specials that were going on on TV all the time. You know, it seemed like, and then the, the advent of the series and stuff. Um, and now I hear the Les Stroud. You mentioned him earlier is is planning on doing something. Um, it seems like right now, I don't know if it's the the flavor of the month or it's just a hot topic or or people just figuring out that it's another one of these reality series. It's you know they're cashing in on it. You know, like my friends with Duck Commander. You know their whole thing. They you know started off doing a hunting show, and then it kind of blew into something else, and mm-hmm. it's it's crazy. But um, I guess the the question is, is, do you see a lot of these people coming forth with reports now? I mean, are you seeing a lot more reports of these things based on the fact that people are working up the nerve to call and and you know reporting them, or are you seeing a lot of increase in false reports? People trying to get get some activity or some action going for themselves. I think probably both, would, you know. Um, okay. Certainly by, by watching the show, and say that you're a Bigfoot witness who's not really comfortable with what you saw when you were 10 or 11 years old, and you saw one of these things. Right. By watching the show, you start realizing, like, well, shoot, not only am I not crazy, I'm not alone either. All these other people that seem rather normal, like me, um, have seen them as well. So maybe that helps people. I'm, actually, I know it does. Um, we just did a town hall meeting in the um, in the Midwest, actually, and uh, a woman said, I, I, "I don't I don't want to share my, my my story at the meeting and stuff." And I said, "Hey, well, you don't have to by any means. Thanks for sharing it with me, but consider this: if you sit through the majority of our meeting and you decide that like you feel comfortable doing so, this is a great opportunity because you're amongst friends. It's like an AA meeting or something. You know, hi, my name's so and so, and I've seen Bigfoot. You know, no one's going to laugh at you here for saying that." Um, and it turns out this woman actually did stand up and share her story towards the end of the meeting. And I spoke to her afterwards, and she said that was great. It was like a weight off of her shoulders that she's been carrying around for a decade, you know. Um, really neat experience. But at the same time, because people think that they're going to make a bunch of money off of a film, I think more fake films are coming out because of the show as well. Um, of course, more real films are now surfacing too. So it's it's on both sides. It goes back to that thing about, like, hoaxers, like, why do people hoax? And I guess there's a monetary incentive for some of them because they don't realize they're not they're going to make, like, 200 bucks by sharing their video with us or something, you know? Uh-huh. You know if it's a really good video, then, yeah, you can probably make a couple hundred bucks or something. But by and large, you know, it's got to be pretty good. A lot of people share their films with us for free on the show because they just want to share it with us. Um, and that's probably the reality because... The reality show genre is so prevalent right now because it's inexpensive to make, and that's the whole point of it. It's not oh, yeah. because that's what everybody wants. The public has been fooled into thinking that's what everybody wants. Um, the fact is it, it's cheap to make, 
you know, non-union crews or whatever are very, very prevalent in the reality show world. So they save money that way. And uh, a skeleton crew or very, very few people filming. Um, the our show has a pretty hefty um, staff, you know, hefty crew. But a lot of shows aren't like that. And if they're going to get your, they're going to try to get your film for free, um, most likely. And even if they do pay, it's not going to be much. So I think people are kind of fooling themselves by making some fake videos and thinking they're going to be rich off of it. You know, I just never thought of it in in that respect, especially now with um, all the the stuff that's on the internet, uh, selling selling the the movie or selling the film or selling the pictures to, you know, like back in the old days they'd sell it to a magazine and try to make money off of it, obviously, you know. But now, um, I just it doesn't it doesn't even seem to make any sense of why somebody'd want to do that. It would cost you more to to try to come up with a, a believable scheme and a, and a costume and footage and time and effort and energy than it would even be worth, you know. Right. And right. and if you got a picture of the ins- uh, of a Bigfoot walking up to you and biting your head off, you know, they'd still say it was a fake. So it wouldn't mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, you know, there's there's still be guys like Moneymaker out there going, "That's a that's a fake Bigfoot. I've seen the inside of their mouth. They don't look anything like that." You know. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think the people that are making the fakes are just doing it probably more than anything else just to see if they could fool the experts. You know, kind of that right, right, games of the ship thing. So yeah, you know, and there's been there's been cases of that. You know, and, um, people gunning for me, in my opinion, um, trying to get my attention so they can try to pull a hoax or whatever. And you know, it it I'd like to think it hasn't worked so far, um, but still, that's part of the danger, I guess, of being prominent in Bigfoot land. Well, and and it's also prominent in the fact that um, that you believe. Okay, and you're and you tend to tilt that direction. You know, if you're not a believer, you're going to be completely skeptic, and and you could have a fresh steaming pile of Bigfoot dung on your front porch, and you wouldn't believe it was that, unless of course you saw him actually wipe his fanny with the Charmin, and then it would be, you know, well, is that really him or not? You know, kind of a deal. But mm-hmm. um, the thing is, it's like, you know, you've had you've had encounters. Uh, uh, James or Bobo, he's had encounters. Matt. Has Matt actually seen one? Is that what he tells people, or does he know? Yes, yeah, he's, he saw one um, in Ohio back in the okay. 90s at some point. Okay, and Renee um, wouldn't, I mean, she's, I mean, is, is there any hope there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. She's heard vocalizations. She's heard knocks. She had a rock thrown at her, and she says that she still doesn't believe, but she doesn't have an explanation for any of those things. So I don't know what to think about her. Where, where was the rock thrown at her at? What, what part California, of California? Uh, on the Hooper Reservation in California during our two-hour Bluff Creek special. Okay. So because there's such a large density of primates that can throw rocks in California, she believes it must have been one of them instead of something else, correct? Yeah, I think that her current thing is that some uh, natives, uh, Native American people followed us out in the woods without lights and somehow snuck around and threw rocks. Um, but that's utterly unbelievable if you knew where we were and how we got there. It's just it's it's far more likely that there's a, a nine foot primate walking around that's a Sasquatch than that happened, in my opinion. Oh Lord. <laughs> but you know I but I, I talk to a lot of people who try to explain away things, um and I think Renee sometimes falls into that category. Um for example um, the Sandy River two years ago, uh, I know I, one of my contacts here had some friends out fishing, um, steelhead fishing, I think, on the Sandy River. And they saw rocks come sailing in 
um, and they had no explanation for it because they, they didn't think Bigfoot's were real, and they didn't realize that you know Bigfoot's are active in that particular area at that time of year, you know. Um, and they made up this idea. Of, you know, what they were telling people is that these guys must have been throwing rocks out of airplanes going overhead because we saw the rocks come in, and that's the only explanation we can come up with because Bigfoot's aren't real. They didn't say right. that because Bigfoot's aren't real, but that was kind of you know implied. Um, and I, you know, I think Renee that she's looking for explanations. Like, how did that rock get there? Well, it must have been one of the Native Americans doing that because. Only people can do that because Bigfoots aren't real. You know, it must have been uh, in in Malala when we got those vocalizations that recorded. That must have been another animal that was making sounds unlike they make, or maybe some people got up on those logging roads that aren't even there to make those noises because they were loud and that's what all the guys say Bigfoot sound like. But Bigfoots aren't real, so it had to be something else. Wow. I don't know. You know what? It, you it, have to ask for a name. It's kind of like if it walks like a duck, sounds like a duck, looks like a duck, would it, it must be a duck. But, you know, I mean, there's just only so much, what's the phrase I'm looking for, circumstantial evidence that, I mean, you can dismiss a lot of it, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when everything else is is exhausted, then you have to use the only logical conclusion to come up with that it must be something that you're not familiar with. And that's, for some strange reason, there's people out there that have a personality defect that they just cannot admit that maybe there's something out there they don't know what it is. They've got, the well, sure. world's finite. You know, it's, if it's not between the covers of these books, it doesn't exist, you know. Um, right, or within their own personal experience. Exactly, you know. And I, I think that's a, a limiting factor on one's uh, one's existence, you know. Like, I had never seen a mountain lion until, like, three years ago. But I was pretty sure they're real, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, see, there's there's a good example for you right there, you know, uh, mountain lions, okay. There are, we're armpit deep in mountain lions in the western United States and, and some of the places up north. And right here in Kansas we have them. But you know what? People don't see them. They don't think they're they're here. They don't think they exist. Um, out west, they know they're there, okay? But how many people live in the state of Colorado? If you took everybody in the state of Colorado and, and asked for a, a sign of hands, how many people have actually seen a mountain lion compared to the entire population of that state? It would be minuscule, okay? Well, sure. Because yeah. they're just not a—they're not an animal that goes prancing around with with bells on. They're they're very very quiet, very secretive, and 99 times out of 100, the people that see them are sitting someplace quietly, and the animal doesn't even know they're there, and they suddenly find themselves in a, in a conflict, you know, or not a conflict, but a contact situation. And it's like the lion suddenly realizes there's something in his living room that doesn't belong there, and it looks like an elk hunter. And the elk hunter's standing there, and he's like, uh-oh, what are we going to do here, you know? Mm-hmm. It happens right. every year. And same thing with Bigfoot. I mean, they're... The vast majority of people that see these things, I'm going to guess, are people that are in the woods doing something besides camping and hiking and stuff. They're out there bow hunting or some quiet activity that requires a human being to be quiet so they can find out what's their their prey animal, i.e. deer, elk, whatever the case may be. Um, now, I think statistically, campers see them more than anyone. Um, which is okay. interesting. Yeah, oddly enough, and and, and then then I think it's drivers and then hunters. But I could be wrong about that. But my understanding is that campers actually see them more, which is interesting, because what is it about what campers are doing that brings the bigfoots to them? Is they have the noise? Food. Is it the smell? Is it the past experiences with campers? I mean, what is it about that? 
And, I, and that's something that um, I think uh, Bigfoot researchers, um, Bigfooters in general, probably should be looking at. Instead of asking, what, what were you doing when you saw the creature? Ask, what were you doing right before you saw the creature? Well, what's, okay, first of all, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> biology 101, the, the main driving force behind any living organism is to procreate, okay? And in order to have the energy to do that, you have to eat, okay? Food and sex. That's, if you want to cut right down to it, that's what it is. I don't care whether it's um, earthworms or whether it's dogs or whether it's humans or, you know, that's basically the driving force that causes the, the species to survive, okay? Right. Um, Sounds like a full day. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and we learned how to brew beer, so that, that makes for a great afternoon. Anyhow, um, the the fact of the matter is that that makes a lot of sense when you when you say that about campers because yeah they're out there there's there's the vocalizations there's the activity I'm curious I want to know what they're doing you know they're in my my house you know I'm going to go see what's right. going on and something smells good you know um, mm-hmm. so I don't know if I buy the whole thing about donuts and bacon but <sighs> meats and sweets from what I understand um, Doc, uh, Ranger Robert Leiterman a good friend of mine in Northern California. Um, he has had some interesting experiences based around cooking bacon um, in the wee hours of the morning on kind of isolated hiking trails where no one else would be. Um, and as far as sweets go, uh, generally speaking from various people across the country that um, have been feeding Bigfoots on or near their property, <clears throat> the two ways to go are meats and sweets. So there's um, actual past experiences by others that we base those things on. It's not just, you know, Homer Simpson-esque sort of Bobo wantings. Right. Well, I just thought those were kind of like his ideas, but okay. Question. There's more to it than that, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good to know. That's, seriously, that is good to know. Um, when, well, shoot, I was going to ask this. I don't know if I, how, how exactly to ask it. Um, when somebody has a sighting, okay, what is the best thing to do as far as reporting it? Who, I mean, obviously you guys are officially or unofficially uh, hooked up with the BFRO. Is that right? Not really. Um, Matt is in the BFRO. Um, okay. No one else on the show is, oddly enough. Matt's the only member. Um, okay. It's a huge misunderstanding because uh, the, the network kind of paints us in that way. Just like uh, in Ghost Hunters, there's some, there's some group that the show is kind of based around, like called TAPS or some right. acronym like that. I don't even know what it stands for, but that there's some sort of organization. In the early days of our show, they kind of wanted us to seem like a unified force, despite the fact that like I wasn't even in the BFRO. Um, so they they kind of frame us like that. But truth be known, uh, I don't have any access to the BFRO database, nor does Bobo or Renee. Um, we don't have any access to the Yahoo group, which is basically what be, being a BFRO member is. It, you have access to the behind-the-scenes database um, and then a Yahoo group. And that's kind of kind of the man behind the curtain there. Um, and the BFRO is a loosely based cyber group, I guess, across the country and some other parts of the world um, that are all kind of interested in various degrees in Bigfoots and take their time to voluntarily on their own dime go look into reports if one piques their interest in their area. But um, I am not a member. Um, I work with the BFRO, however. I'm more than happy to work with anybody. Because as you noted earlier in the show, 
there's a lot of um, spite and anger out there in the Bigfoot community that people are happy to throw around verbally. Um, and politics being what they are, I'm just frankly kind of not interested in it. I'm not interested in the people of Bigfoot. I'm interested in Bigfoots. So I found out that the best way for me to gain the most information and to have the widest network is to not be a part of any group. So I am solely Cliff. That's me. Everything on my website is put up by me. Everything on my blog is put up by me. It represents my It's not anyone else's. And by being independent and free like that, I am free to work with not only anybody in the BFRO, but anybody in uh, the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society or, and the, or the East Tennessee Bigfoot Group or, or any, anybody else, really. Um, everybody is more than welcome to talk to me, and I'm more than willing to talk to anybody because sometimes being in a club implies that other people are out of that club, and I'm not interested in that. Okay, very cool. Well, so to answer the question, if they had, if they had a report, where would you suggest that they report it to? Well, I mean, I'd plug myself and say, I've got, uh, come tell me about it. Um, there's not a lot anybody can do about a report, but if there's someone that I know personally in your neighborhood, I will certainly uh, send that person your way and uh, have them speak to you. Um, okay. Sometimes my contacts are people who happen to be BFRO affiliated, and sometimes I have other people working for me as well. You know, as I'm, as I'm going around the country doing Bigfoot stuff, I need a lot of very rock-solid researchers out there that don't have a line of information coming into them beyond word of mouth in their own neighborhood. So now I, I'm broadening their horizons with new reports that come to me. You know, okay. uh, Like in Vermont, for example. I, I've got a great guy out named Frank. He actually is the guy who took that uh, Vermont trail cam photograph. Frank has asked to do some work for me, and I'm more than happy to hook him up with anybody in the neighborhood. Um, I, I work with another guy, Bill, out in Maine, who, who's looking into some stuff in New England for me. Um, another guy named Matt, who lives in South Carolina, takes the whole eastern seaboard and is part of the south for me. Um, I've got the, a good friend, Chris, who lives here in Oregon. So when I'm on the road and something pops up, I can talk to Chris or Craig Flippy or Will Robinson or any number of people around here. Um, I've got people all over the country. No, that's not true yet. I've got people in a lot of strategic places in the country. Um, but, yeah, I would say report it to me. I'm interested in hearing about it. I know Matt's always looking to increase his database, so you can report to the BFRO, and there's a lot of good people in the BFRO. Um, there's a number of uh, – I, I encourage people to kind of go local, you know. Like, so if you're, if you're in Tennessee, talk, talk to the East Tennessee people, you know. They'll come out and put their boots on the ground in your backyard and, and stand where the Bigfoot was and say, was it this big? You know, they'll do stuff like that. There's a bunch of good people with good, honest hearts who are interested in learning, not exploiting, um, about the creatures. And they they deserve the attention, you know. But the, the Texas guys are, are pretty good. I like what they're doing. I, I think they're trying to shoot one. I'm not really for that. But um, I, there's a lot of good local groups wherever you go. So I would try to contact somebody local. If you can't find anybody, you know, shoot me an email. Maybe I know somebody out there. Okay. Well, you know, you mentioned that you mentioned a couple things that I was wanting to talk about. Um, I've had the guys from the Texas Research uh, Texas Bigfoot Research Conservancy. Yeah, those guys. They've been the on. Yeah, one of them um, is a professor in a college, I believe, in Oklahoma, and the That's other Alan one, Higgins. right? And the other one is a retired military intelligence individual. He also lives in Oklahoma. Um, Daryl Collier. I'm I, not no, sure I what Daryl does. 
I can't remember the name. I, I do know that the the one gentleman, the one that was a professor, had an experience up in the Pacific Northwest while they were hunting elk. Um, that was his first, honest to God, laid eyes on one experience. And the other gentleman uh, had a sighting there on his property in uh, eastern Oklahoma. Um, kind of freaked him out, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and the biggest thing you've seen on your property since you've owned it is white-tailed deer and wild turkeys, and, well, that doesn't look like a turkey, you know, kind of a right, thing. Right, right. Um, Oklahoma, you know, it's a state right next door to us, right south of us, um, has had a history of these things for a very, very long time. Um, I mean, in the in the White Mountains there, uh, in the eastern part of the state, and, and down around Antler, Oklahoma, and that, that part of the world, um, people, when they think of Oklahoma, they think of pictures of, like, the Dust Bowl, and nothing can be further from the truth, you know. Mm-hmm. Southeast Oklahoma is is some of the most wild, coon-ass country you've ever laid eyes on, you know. Sure. Um, but anyway, that's that's one of those places down there um, that I was going to talk to you about. Do you, after after you have an episode that airs like the one that was in Oklahoma last week, um, or not last week, the week before, do you guys start getting a lot more reports coming from there? People yeah, I would think they so. want to step up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Um, and a lot more people just in the general area contact and start saying, oh, my aunt said she saw one, or a lot of secondhand stuff starts coming the way, too. Um, but, yeah, and Oklahoma's a great spot, not just southeast either. I mean, everybody knows about Hanobi and stuff. But uh, as we pointed out, there's a lot of activity around Oklahoma City. Um, some very intriguing things are coming out of western Oklahoma right now, of all places, one of the last places you'd expect. But there's something that I've learned really dramatically, I think, this past year, is that, um, and I've always known this, but it's good to be reminded, Bigfoots do not conform to my expectations at all. Um, The places where I have seen and now encountered Sasquatches are amongst the last places I would expect them to be. Um, But it's true, again and again and again. Very reliable sightings and even encounters I've personally experienced pop up in places where you least expect Bigfoots to be. And, uh, you know, western Oklahoma is one of those places. Uh, and it is forested um, fairly, okay, you know, fairly well, I guess. But by and large, you don't think of Western Oklahoma when you think Bigfoot, right? Well, you know, the thing is, um, thirty-five years ago, when I was reading about these things, forty years ago, when I was reading about these things, they, for all intents and purposes, they thought they were herbivores. Okay, sometimes you know they might eat bugs and small mammals and stuff, but there was never any conversation about them hunting deer. Okay, um, and it just seems like recently I start hearing about them hunting deer. When did when did this all come about? I mean, what was what was the revelation that somebody saw it or they witnessed it? Or I mean, now it's just kind of like you know, yeah, it's a given fact. Um, whereas well, forty years um, ago they thought they were herbivores. Like most well, I of think forty years ago people were were working under the assumption that they were they were falling in line with the other great apes. But these right. things are different than the other great apes in a lot of ways. Um, it's been noted for a long time uh, that that these things were stealing deer or that sort of thing from hunters. Um, the first per- the first paper that I was aware of that was written on the subject was actually done by Matt Moneymaker of all people um, in the 1990s. He lived in um, Ohio and he was speaking to Mennonite farmers in this area of high Bigfoot activity, and they noted deer kills, you know, various deer kills and how the livers were removed all the time. And like how like well that's a peculiar thing for other animals that that we know live here to do, 
but they've also been seeing Bigfoots in the area as well. So um, he was, as far as I'm, I, I know of, the first person to write about that in any sort of extended essay sort of ways. But there, there have been sighting reports of people killing deer and a Bigfoot stepping up, picking up the deer and walking away for a long time. I mean, Grover Kranz wrote about that in his book that was published in 1991, which predated um, Moneymaker's paper by several years. Um, so that sort of activity has been noted, but I think that the correlation wasn't really strongly set yet um, at that point. Because, again, people are assuming that these things would be herbivores because that's our knowledge of the other apes. And, of course, you know, 20 years ago in the early 1990s or something, it wasn't widely recognized that chimpanzees were the omnivores they are either. You know, that ch- chimpanzees actually hunted other species of monkeys and oh, yeah. uh, small, small ungulates and ate them. Um, that wasn't widely known at that point either. But, um, but yeah, Sasquatches, they're, they're, the sighting reports of Sasquatches strongly correlate to deer migration routes. Now, I think that's partly because they're eating the deer. But I also think it's partly because they're exploiting the same vegetative foods that the deer are using. They're, because the deer, like deer and elk, for example, being a hunter yourself, maybe you know this, uh, but I don't know if you just hunt birds or ungulates, but deer and elk have have different dietary needs. The elk um, can live under the forest canopy and digest really low nutritional value foods. But deer mm-hmm. don't do that. Deer don't live under the I – mean, they may sleep and stuff under the forest canopy, but they generally graze out in meadows and power line cuts and along roadsides because that's where sunlight hits the forest floor, and that's where the more nutritious plants are. Um, so are Sasquatches following the deer herds just to eat them or because they eat the same um, vegetation that the deer eat or both? Um, I'm inclined to think both, but, it, but I think it's been pretty well said at this point um, that – there's some connection, and probably a, a food connection, between Sasquatches and deer. Okay. Well, you know, <clears throat> when you're talking about migrating, uh, like elk and deer, you're talking about like in the mountains and stuff, where they migrate from the top to the bottom during the winter time. You know, yeah, mostly vertical Kansas, migrations, correct. Yeah, here in Kansas, we don't have uh, a migration, or Oklahoma, they don't have a migration per se. Um, it's more of a, they're just there. You know, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Hey, um, just real quickly, are you interested in taking any phone calls from anybody? Yeah, I'm up for whatever. Okay, let's see what we yeah, got. I'm happy to happy to talk to anybody you'd like to speak to me. There's been a few. <laughs> there's been a few people. I'm I'm proof of that. Um, hang on a second. Let's see what we got here. Okay, area code four one seven. You're on the air. You got a question? Yeah, uh, Cliff. Uh, my name is Ron Bowles. I'm with the oh, Pro hi, Ron. How you doing, sir? I know who you are. Hey, how are you? <laughs> oh, good. Uh, question, and and I was sort of listening, and I was interested in what you all were bringing up about the deer and stuff like that. Uh, my opinion is that with uh, the amount of forest growth that is, um, you know, there's more trees in, in North America than there has been in almost 100 years, and the and the deer population, wild turkey population, and the feral hog population that has practically exploded across the North American continent, I would almost say that econo- uh, uh, not economically, but uh, uh, eco-wise, you know, that uh, North America would is probably more eco-friendly for the squatches than it has been for. Uh, quite some time, and I'm talking like 150 years when 
you know, uh, North America was over harvested for the trees and over hunted for the game. What what would yeah, your I, opinion be? I would probably agree with that because I know a lot of, the, especially big footing back east, you know, New England, for example. Uh, a lot of what used to be farmland has now been reverted back to forest land. I think there's more cover for the creatures than ever before. Um, certainly the deer populations aren't, aren't in any danger. I mean, it's, when you go to places like West Virginia, um, we are in West Virginia for a few months ago, and I, I think that they're allowed seven deer in a year. Like, that's how many they, could, they can hunt. We're out, out here in Oregon, you're limited to one doe, and I think it's like seven, or one buck, but out there it's seven, and you can, you know, the sex doesn't matter or anything. So certainly the deer aren't in any danger. Um, and the habitat is really not in any sort of short supply, um, which is probably the biggest danger that we impose on Bigfoots, I think, is habitat destruction. Um, but, at, but really, as, as you're speaking, something else I was thinking of is that I don't want to limit um, the, the food resources to just deer, because exactly. what I've noticed through I'm taking a lot of sighting reports is that whenever there is a sur- superfluous amount of protein in an area, um, that's where Bigfoots can generally be found. Um, in eastern Ohio, uh, a place called Beaver Creek State Park, they have a, a goose problem. At least they did a few years ago when they're having all these Bigfoot encounters. Um, so much so that the rangers would uh, would broadcast goose distress calls after the tourists went home to try to scare away geese. Um, I took a great report from a botanist in the Sierra Nevada mountains who commented about that he had never seen so many brook trout in one location in his entire life, and they were small enough that the anglers would probably ignore them. Um, in Southern California, in the Antelope Valley, you know, Coachella, like where the music festival is, there was a huge rash of sightings that people just don't even really believe. What they don't know is that uh, at that time, there was six-foot grass throughout the entire valley and a huge rabbit infestation. So there were just tons and tons of rabbits everywhere, and that's where the Bigfoots were. Um, so wherever there's too much protein is where you're going to find a Bigfoot, whether it's deer or rabbits or whatever. And you were talk, uh, the host was talking about, you know, how there hasn't been until recently a rush of uh, sightings with, you know, deer, uh, deer and Bigfoot. But actually, uh, I, one book that I often refer back to is the historical Bigfoot, and it's basically just a bunch of old newspaper reports about uh, Bigfoot sightings that made it in the, in the old newspapers, you know, back in the day. And it was common for them to be seen going after deer or pigs or what, or what have you. Sure. You know, yeah, I, do, absolutely. I do recall some stories of specifically the, the animals down in um, East Texas and Louisiana, uh, the wild feral hogs in the swamps and stuff. But what I, what I was saying was 40 years ago, 45 years ago, they primarily um, kind of, concluded that these animals were more like the great apes. You know, they basically ate vegetation. Um, yeah. and, then, and now it's like, you know, deer. It's deer, 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 deer. And good God, if, if there's one thing we have in the Midwest in, in abundance, well, I don't know about right now, but uh, well, you got to remember 45 years ago, deer population and wild turkey population was almost, especially in the Midwest, because I'm in Missouri, uh, deer population and, uh, deer, and wild turkey population was almost non-existent. Exactly. I remember when I was a little kid, seeing a deer was a great thing. Now I can't hardly go to my job, go to work without hitting one. 1965 <laughs> was the first year that they opened up rifle season here in the state of Kansas for deer, and my dad saw one coming home from the state fair, and he was <clears throat> all excited. You know, our neighbor across the street was lucky enough to draw a permit to hunt him that year, and he got one. 
you know, and every yeah. every guy in the neighborhood was over there hanging out in his garage looking at his deer, you know. And now, and, and uh, nowadays, it's you know, nowadays Kansas, Missouri, we're sick with deer. Yeah, I mean, well, except for last weekend, they all migrated someplace else because my son and I didn't <laughs> saw one doe, you know. <laughs> so, but um. All right. Well, I'll leave y'all be, Cliff. Good talking to you. Good show, y'all. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, nice kind of meeting on. you. <laughs> all right. Bye bye. Um, all right. Take it easy. Man. Um. You know, the thing is, is that, like like Ron was saying, you know, there was a time in the not-too-distant past that, uh, you know, there wasn't any deer here. I mean, literally, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're, I don't want to say we're armpit deep in them because my own experiences this last weekend, Bigfoot would starve to death here. But, you know, um, what, what, where do you see here in North America the, the hot spots for, for these things? I mean... The, the, where it keeps, I mean, you, you got your traditional areas, obviously, in the Pacific Northwest, but the places that you don't expect, like you were just talking about, some of the places you would never expect to find one of these things. You mentioned western Oklahoma. Where else? I mean, Well, yeah. Um, South Dakota is a really good example. Um, the Pine Ridge Reservation. Uh, like, I've heard about reports there, but I've never been there before until this past year. And um, it's like you look there and you say, wow, where are they going to hide? Well, they, they hide in the crevices, you know, in the, in the river valleys and whatnot. Those are thick, rambly, sort of nasty areas. Um, but, yeah, that, that was kind of a surprise, that they're seen just walking over the plains oftentimes at night, um, getting from one valley to another. I thought that was kind of peculiar. Um, Pocatello, Idaho is another good example from our last season opener this past year, um, or, or chunk opener this past season, I guess, um, <laughs> when we went visited uh, Dr. Meldrum's lab uh, uh-huh. and looked into the Mink Creek footage. Like uh, A lot of the sightings, some of which didn't make the show, by the way, um, were done by police officers who saw these things through thermal imagers down on the farmlands, many, many, many miles away from the nearest mountains. Um, very surprising place for a big, big foot to be, but less than two miles from an aqueduct. Um, so the, the, they, these creatures never cease to amaze me. They are so beautiful and amazing and and just not... They're just such anarchists. They don't give a damn about what we think they should be doing. They do whatever they want to do anyway, and they're so cool. Mm-hmm. Well, this this footage that, that gets cut from these things, is there ever going to be a, a the lost reels or the lost footage or the bloopers or anything like that ever come out? Well, you know, some, some of that footage is actually shown in other countries. Um, as it turns out, television wow. programs in the United States um, are 43 and a half minutes long for an hour episode. The rest of that chunk is just commercials. Um, right. But in other countries, like Canada and the U.K., um, it's another three or four more minutes of programming. They just don't have as many commercials as, right. as we do here in America. So when I get the discs, because I'm, I, I'm allowed to see the episodes now before they air um, to avoid any unpleasantries you know, that we saw happening in the first season, um, like weird creative editing that was not appropriate or whatever, um, those, those discs that I get and those versions that I get um, that I download to watch they have the American version, and then afterwards they have these things called snap-ins because they you know, virtually snap in to the final edit at some point, which makes the entire TV program longer for those other country markets, you know, the Canadian market in the U.K., for example. Um, and that's where a lot of that other footage ends up. So now okay. if and when the DVDs are ever released, and I don't know anything about that, um, but if they decide to release the DVDs um, for public sale, I'm curious how much of that stuff is going to be going to make it into the episodes, or if they're going to use it for special features, or just eliminate it altogether. Because I don't know; I'm not involved in any of that stuff. 
You know, I just do Bigfoot stuff. That's all network things. Tell me, you said something about police officers saw these things on thermal imagers, and did they correct, uh, they got yeah. copies of that? They got it recorded? No, 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 because they saw them on a thermal imager that didn't record. Oh, okay. Very, very few thermal imagers, and especially the handheld ones, record. Um, right. FLIR, again, um, makes the best one that I know of, which are the Scouts or the H1 series is what they call it. They have internal um, internal disks that they record to on an SD card. Um, but by and large, these the, that sort of technology isn't used for wildlife surveillance at all. It's used for, like, finding out where a house is leaking heat or where, where certain machinery is overheating, that sort of stuff. And there's a huge variety of uses for, um, for uh, thermal imagers, and really the Bigfoot market is relatively small, as you can probably imagine. Um, mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of speaking at the FLIR conference. I was one of their keynote um, speakers this past, uh, this past month um, in Florida. They flew me down there, and I got to talk about using thermal imagers in my quest to film Sasquatches. Um, but I was kind of amazed at the other uses, like, which, which, that, which was really funny, actually, because after I got off stage and whatever else, and you know, and I, I think I did a pretty good presentation, I had a lot of people interested in speaking to me, and they'd come up and, oh, hey, Cliff, I, I saw your presentation, and blah, 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 and I'd start talking to them, and I, said, and I, and I would turn the table and say, so really, you, you use thermal imagers to find out where insulation is very good on buildings. Weird, you know, because I was thinking, well, what a weird use for these things. They're not looking for Bigfoot with them at all. That's strange. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they just, like, tripped out on me, you know. It's like, yeah, like, these have been around for decades. We've never used them for that. You're a weirdo, not us. So, no, no, right. you're the weirdo because you use these things to find out where machinery is overheating instead of looking for giant, you know, man apes. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I, I know that in the uh, hills of Tora Bora in Afghanistan, they were used extensively over there, you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. It's it's amazing how quickly that kind of terrain cools off at night, and people scurrying around four or five miles away from you, it's just they just glow like crazy, you know. And uh, oh yeah, you see where the bad guys are at, and you introduce them to some of your friends from the air. So, yeah. Well, in the Washington episode, we we see deer um, with wood rats jumping around them at yeah. two or three miles distance. You can see the wood rats jumping around. It's phenomenal. When we're using that right under the military grade flitter technology, uh-huh. it's just uh, uh, what a what a neat opportunity that was. Well, you know what? I'm surprised that there's not more aerial um, observation of some of these areas. I mean, um, because that would seem to me to, to, to be the most <clears throat> that would be the, the thing that make, would make the most sense. You know, is being up in the air um, because he seems to step behind a tree and you're not going to see him. Well, you know, if you're up in the air. You know, maybe you could get a peek down on them from above. I don't know. It just it's. But wouldn't crazy. that be true if you were in the air too? Wouldn't they just step behind a tree or not even step out from underneath the trees? Well, now that you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think the airborne searches are, are any more promising than any other search. In fact, I think the ground searches are probably the, the most promising, even though you don't cover as much terrain, um, because you can generally see through the trees to some degree. But from up above, you're counting on being at the right place where a Bigfoot happens to be at the right time, and it's going to make the mistake of stepping out into the open as opposed to staying hidden and safely underneath the trees despite the fact that it hears a helicopter or a plane overhead. Okay. I, I don't know. It, doesn't, it seems more feasible to me to actually run across one on the ground by using attractants, um, you know, audible attractants or some other sort of attractants than um, flying around hoping to see one. 
because even even if you do see one from the air, you got a couple seconds on a therm or something, and it's not any more valuable than any other piece of footage, except that the novelty is you got it from the air. Right. Well, you've been doing this for a long time, all right, and and I know you've had plenty of opportunities to think about what would be the perfect scenario, all right. That if if you could go to one place, all right, and I mean you got your own place in mind. Um, what exactly would you do to try to make sure you had an encounter? I mean, after after the last several clumps of the seasons of the, of the clumps, excuse me, um, and all your experience prior to that, I mean, you, you start getting a pretty good idea of what's going on, how's it going. Um, if you could follow one rule of thumb and trying to get out there and try to find it, you know, what would that be? I mean, what? Does that make live sense there. what I'm trying to say here? Yeah, huh? live there, I think, is the best the best way to do it. Um, now, having a home in the woods where Bigfoot sometimes wander by, I think is by far the most effective way to learn about these things. Um, a lot of people call it habituations. I, I don't think that Bigfoot's ever truly become habituated, um, but they might let their guard down a little around you. They might let themselves be seen if, you're, if you've proven yourself to not be a threat. Now, that can be done at places where you don't live. Um, and I think Mike Green um, demonstrated that pretty well with his footage. He was hitting the same campground over and over and over and over again for two years. He'd go there at least twice a month, sometimes three or four times a month, um, do the same thing, same time, drove the same car, wore the same clothes. Everything was the same. He became, and this is a key here, that's the most important thing, he became a trusted feature in their environment. That's the this key. is the candy bar guy, right? That's the candy bar guy. Yeah, and he right, eventually okay. got a film by doing that. It took okay. himself removing himself from that situation. He he wasn't even there when he got the film, but that was the key. He did the same thing enough that the Bigfoots started learning that he that Mike was predictable, and um, because Mike became very predictable, they knew what the big the Bigfoots knew that they could get away with certain things, and so they did. And one of them got caught on film, basically. Um, probably didn't be most to it. Now, I, I think that's the key, you know, um, becoming a trusted feature in their environment is the way that this is going to be done. So if I had my way, and I've got the spot chosen. I know exactly where I'd go. Um, I have the best spot I've ever heard of out in the National Forest. Um, there's never been a recorded sighting from there. Um, I've been there seven times. I've only heard vocalizations once, but I've heard knocks six times. Six out of seven times I was there. I heard knocks. Um, they are there. Other people I know work that same spot, and they've heard they, they've had camp visitations. They've they've heard the things walking around their camp after they go to bed. Like it's a really really good spot. But I'm on the road, and I can't hit that spot as much as I need to. If I could do it, I would go there three four nights a week, always wearing the same clothes, always driving the same car, always camping in the same spot, always doing the same routine like clockwork. I would bring a, a sound, like a side whistle or some sort of like zoom sort of thing where I would blow that upon my arrival so anything with an earshot would know it's me. And that sound would only be associated with me. I would leave food out. I would go for walks and do the same route at the same time. I would do everything I could to be a very, very predictable thing. And then eventually... So I've been told by people who have tried this technique before with some success. Eventually, after many, many months or many, many years of doing that, 
something changes. And after that, it's a little different. And sometimes they won't be as careful as other times. And maybe you can catch a glimpse of one. Sometimes they'll leave things for you in a very obvious place. Um, things change. They start interacting on some degree, so I'm told. That's okay. the best way to do it. A well, long-term like social things, interaction. These things like to visit campsites. I mean, that's that's one of the things when they when they determine that the people in the tents are asleep, you know, and there, there's no dogs in the campsite. Um, they they come in, they they look around, um, they do their thing, and then they wander off. Uh, it, it's amazing to me that nobody's put up, you know, trail cams in their campsite. You know. Oh, I have. I have lots of times. I just oh, haven't okay. got one yet. And, uh, you know, that's part of the thing, too, is I've been told by other researchers that it's rude to try to take their picture. And maybe they're right. Um, but I kind of figure if they're going to come into my camp and muss around with my stuff, well, that's not exactly the most polite thing either, and therefore I get a chance to take a picture of one. <laughs> that's rude to take their picture? Now, see, it's when people no, I, say things like that, it's a little crazy, you know? Yeah, yes and no. I can see what they're saying, but uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. But I, I understand what they're saying. Um but, but but I don't know. I've, I've done ruder things. <laughs> you're just you're just not a socially acceptable kind of guy. Is that it? So I, I really I really have some social difficulties. I'm a quiet introvert. Absolutely, well, nothing wrong with that. So hey, let's talk about that freaking herd of footprints that you that uh, some folks found and you got in on the the first observation of them and stuff. What what was the story with those? Oh yeah, the London tracks is what I think you're talking about. Uh-huh. Um, basically, some guy walking his dog ran across uh, three footprints on a berm um, above a, above Cottage Grove Reservoir, which was partially drained at the time, uh, on that guy's dog walk. We still don't know who that gentleman is, by the way. Um, he's kind of the missing link in the whole thing right now. But he ran across this other guy named Max Roy. And Max um, started talking to this guy because he had a dog, too. And the guy says, well, you want to see something good? Are you, are you, how, how far are you walking? Max was a little bit further down. Well, you want to see, there, there's some big footprints down there. You should check them out. It's kind of weird. And Max said, well, yeah, okay, whatever, kind of laughed, and they split ways. Max went and saw those three footprints, and it really bothered him, really. Um, I think he saw it, I'm getting my timeline a little mixed up, which is why I write things down. I think he saw it on a Sunday night. Um, so he went home that night, and he, it really bothered him, and he, he couldn't really sleep well and stuff. He went back, I think, on Tuesday and took pictures and then showed up to this guy's house. Um, well, there was this crazy car driving around the neighborhood with a bunch of Bigfoot stickers on it, so he figured, well, maybe that person's interested. And he remembered where that car was, so he went up to the door knocked on it, and that car, it turns out, used to belong to Toby Johnson, um, a Bigfooter down in uh, Eugene, um, who ran the Oregon Sasquatch Symposium for a few years. But at that point, Toby uh, had given his car to his ex-wife, you know, to help out with things, and they've got a kid together and stuff. So, And Toby's a great guy, so uh, he supports as best he can. So he gave the car to his ex-wife, and she took most of the stickers off because she's sane, right? Um, and then uh, Max <laughs> says, well, you had all these stickers, right? You've got to drive right? to school, for God's sake. Come on, <laughs> exactly. You don't, get, you don't want the kid to get beat up or anything. Right. Um, so uh, he says, well, you like Bigfoot, right? She goes, well, my, my ex-husband does. Here's his number. So Toby goes down there, checks out the prints. He loves them. He's freaking out. He calls me, Cliff, how do I cast these things? I said, oh, great, you got prints. Um, here's how you do it. He stays up all night long. He finds another print that wasn't even identified um, by either man, the, the unknown dog walker or Max Roy. Um, he stays up all night long casting these prints, kind of overdoing it, but he wanted to make sure he did a great job. And in the morning time, 
he looks out on the lake bed once light comes up, and apparently the creature had walked out on the lake bed before it left these four prints that Toby was dealing with. And there was a line of over 100 footprints in the soft muck of the lake bed. So mm-hmm. he calls me back and says, Cliff, there's over 100 prints. You've got to get down there. And I was doing a speaking engagement actually at my former elementary school that I mentioned earlier, um, doing that science fair kickoff thing. So I left straight from there, called my friend Chris Minier, directed him to purchase 200 pounds of hydrocal white, which is a casting compound. And um, through, and basically, Chris and I spent the entire night casting prints. I got home at 5.30 in the morning, and uh, when it's all said and done, of the 122 footprints left in the mud, Chris and I cast 72 of them, which, to my knowledge, um, especially when you combine it with other... Well, let me back up again. The next day, Guy Edwards and Tom Powell and Beth Heikinen and Toby and a few other folks who showed up and cast even more prints, about another 20 or so. So the collaborative effort of of all the Bigfooters involved um, represents the largest single haul of Bigfoot data ever retrieved from any site, ever. So it's a really exciting thing. Um, uh, I've got 72 of the casts in my garage, um, mixed in with the other stuff in my collection, I've done a tremendous amount of analysis on it. I'm still actually measuring um, toe splay at this at this moment is what I'm doing. Um, I've driven the cast out to Dr. Jeff Meldrum. He he invited me out. Um, so my friend Craig Flippy and I went out on a Bigfoot road trip to Dr. Jeff Meldrum's lab with about 20 or 25 casts. He scanned them into his three-dimensional virtual footprint archive using really top-notch state-of-the-art um, equipment. Um uh, it's Craig Cook, the other line, oddly enough, it's funny to know I'm doing a radio thing. But anyway, so we drove out there and did that, and um, Jeff invited, uh, Dr. Meldrum invited me to uh, write a paper for his online peer-reviewed journal called the Relic Hominoid Inquiry. Um, I've submitted a man- manuscript. Um, Dr. Meldrum loved it. He requested that I take some, a few more measurements, which I'm currently doing. I'll resubmit the article um, probably this month and it'll be published probably in January, I'm guessing, or February at the latest, I guess, whenever you know Dr. Meldrum and his peer reviewers get around to it. Um, and that's where we stand at this point. It's, it's an exciting thing. It's still going on. Um, I, I quietly release another footprint um, on my blog and add it to the archive on my website um, every few weeks or so. Um, I wish I could do it faster, but you know, making television kind of takes up most of my time in life, it seems. But... Um, yeah, we're I'm quietly moving ahead with it. It's still in progress, and so far I see no reason to think that these are hoaxes. They seem to be totally legitimate. Cool. What else? I mean, I know that's that's kind of a big thing for you right there. You found, I mean, um, on one of the episodes when you found footprints, I mean, you kind of went a little goony goo goo, you know. That's an industry term. Um, yeah. yeah. So, well, so those, find, those turn out upon further scrutiny. Those footprints that we found in Georgia are, turn out to be most likely from the black bear. Um, those are also on my footprint, art, footprint database on my website, um, mm-hmm. and you can look at Dr. Jeff Meldrum's analysis of them. And I just I reprinted in full the, um, Dr. Meldrum's and my correspondence about those footprints full, for the sake of full transparency, so you, everyone can see why we arrived at the conclusion that these are probably black bear footprints. Okay, well that's cool. I mean, you know, the the fact that, you know, you guys came up with that decision and you 
you decided that was the, the best way to go was to put that out there. That only makes sense, you know. It's well, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to fool anybody into thinking anything, man. If these are black bear, I want people to know it. Um, right. So I added them to the database with a, a with a thing saying these are most likely black bear, but some people disagree. So we'll see. Well, we probably won't see, but <laughs> this, is, this, is what, this is what we've got actually. Well, as far as recent stuff, okay. Um, let's just say in the last ninety days, what, what's the most exciting thing that you've that you've been part of or heard of in the last ninety days, aside from the show itself? <laughs> My week off, I think. Um, okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, just not being on the show is a phenomenal thing for me. Um, let's see, in the last ninety days, I mean, we're filming the next season, um, and I don't think it's any secret where we've been because the newspapers have been following us around. I started the last night. I started at the first week of November, going at, to Orlando, Florida. To um, to the Flitter Conference and speak there, um, and in in that uh, conference, and again we're we're talking about using thermal imaging technology to do Bigfoot stuff. I included a clip that was sent to me from uh, two gentlemen, a father and son team, named Stacy Brown Jr. and Senior, um, from Florida. They captured a Bigfoot, it seems, on their thermal imager. Um, and uh, at that point, I had just seen the clip, and they, they were gracious enough to let me use it for my presentation. Um, and uh, I, I got to meet them, actually, at the presentation, because they, they drove down a few hours, and I got them a, a free ticket to the, to the gig. And they came in, and they introduced themselves, and I spoke to them at length about their experience. And since that time, and actually, I just published it this past week, um, I've spent numerous hours with their footage um, and some measurements that they obtained for me at the site, um, Stacy Jr. contacted me and, and requested that I look closely at his film um, to try to off, uh, authenticate it. And, of course, I said, well, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do that, but maybe there's information we can squeeze out of this, um, like the size of the critter and whatever else. So I, I sent them back to the site. They had already been there on a number of occasions, and at my direction, they've gone back to the site now, I think, three times, four times, just to get more measurements from me. Um, and I've taken the measurements that they gave me, and I've got a pretty rough estimate that I'm pretty confident of, of the size of the creature depicted in the film. Um, very briefly, the film is on my website. Anybody can go look at it. It's uh, okay. also on the Sasquatch Hunters, which is Stacy's website, um, Stacy Brown Jr. and Sr. Um, they're the guys who actually got the film, and they own it. Um, so the, the, the footage is there as well. But basically... Uh, they, they they were they were out bigfooting and their thing is they they play loud music in camp and then while the music's playing they go for walks without lights you know and see if they can hear anything and try to figure out what it is. On one of those occasions they they got lucky and they saw a figure hand, hiding behind a tree, and then it steps out from the tree from left to right and goes behind this other wad of bushes and you see the creature um, for less than a second or two easily less than two seconds probably like a second. Um, you get about 12 different frames um, of movement, you know, like 12 frames of movement uh, between the trees. It is clearly, clearly either a man or a Sasquatch. There is no other possibility for misidentification. So the question is, how big was it? So using the uh, measurements that they obtained for me at the site and uh, recreation videos that they sent to me, um, I determined through some pretty simple math, really, like 8th grade, ninth grade level math, that the thing stood probably between eight and nine feet tall, that uh, it, its shoulder width was somewhere between 35 and 50 inches, 
um, and that one giant step that it took out from behind the tree was about seven feet long or so. Um, and all of those measurements are clearly beyond that of a human being. Um, there are elements about the, its posture and gait that are strongly congruent with what we think we know about Bigfoot so far. Um, the trailing leg in the initial swing phase of the gait, for example, bends to 89 degrees, which is 100% consistent with the Patterson-Gimlin film. Um, the leading leg in the gait, unfortunately, is obscured by brush, but it, it appears to be using the compliant gait, like a bent knee posture, in other words. But that's uncertain. But it appears that's what the case is. But, again, I can't say that with absolute certainty because part of the leg is obscured by brush. Um, the, 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 the low head and the high shoulders of the thing is consistent with, with what we think we know about Bigfoots. And it's also been seen in other films, including the Oklahoma photographs, that were featured on the show last week, as well as the Freeman footage. Um, so in the last 90 days, that to me is the most exciting thing, that I, I got to squeeze some numbers out of that piece of footage, brief though it is, and those numbers strongly suggest that those two gentlemen filmed the Sasquatch in northern Florida, and they were not a part of a hoax, whether they perpetrated it or they were the victims thereof. But they appear to have uh, filmed the Sasquatch. Well, when you take information like that, okay, when you take photos like that and you've got the measurements of the, the corresponding terrain and the trees, et cetera, and the distance from the camera to the, to the creature, all right, and you do the math and all that and you come up with these sort of numbers, how is it you can take that and show somebody like Renee and and, and they, they, they just get that passive blank look on their face or that little smirk kind of a thing, like, are you really that stupid? you really think I'm going to believe this kind of thing? I mean, that's that's where I, I mean, you know, there's a hysterical sighting that somebody thinks they saw something in the woods and they can't really describe it. That's one thing. But when you got a photograph that, you know, you can take measurements and know exactly what's what. I mean, if you can prove it's not some six-foot-six guy, you know, with regular-length arms and, a, and you know, standard-sized head and a shaped head, if, if it's not a human being, then what, what in the heck is it? You know? The safest thing for a skeptic to do is to ignore the situation. That way they're not confronted with the possibility of them being wrong. Okay. So by not examining the evidence, they can be nice and safe in their delusion that they're correct about something. And I find that's what a lot of people do on both sides of the fence, whether, whether they're skeptics or Bigfooters. Um, it, 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 it's very frustrating to me because I, I'm an advocate of science, and part of science is sharing your results so people can test your results to see if you're right or you made some sort of flaw, made some sort of error in your calculations or assumptions. Um, but e Bigfooters are even, um, in my opinion, guilty of this, that like, oh, I have, I have photographs of a footprint. Oh, may I see it, please? I'd like to see if I can see it. Well, I don't want to share it because it's my area or whatever, or I've got pictures of a Bigfoot, and it's hard to see... I don't want to show it to anybody. Well, well, good for you, because if you don't show anybody at all, then you can hold on to your story that you had a Bigfoot encounter or you found Bigfoot footprints or whatever it is. Um, because as long as you don't show anybody, you're not running the risk of being wrong about it. And I find this right. a lot with footprint photographs, either because a lot of things in the ground that are normal scuff marks look like footprints, or people find bear prints and they don't want to know. I mean, I've been wrong lots of times on footprints, I was wrong on national TV about footprints, but so what? I learned from it, and that's the point. 
But as long as you don't share your data with somebody who might know a little bit more than you or might give you a different opinion than what you want, then you can rest safe in your delusions that you had this happen. And it's a very, very safe place to be. And not only Bigfooters or skeptics do that. Both sides do that. As long as you don't share or as long as you don't look at the information, you don't run the risk of being wrong. Hmm. But that's not what? science. That's not the way it works. No, you know, That doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah, you you got to scrape everything away, and, and what you got there is hard facts. I mean, that's just the bottom line, you know. Um, right, and I don't want to be too harsh a critic on either side because skeptics and Bigfooters both play their role. Um, that's just something I've noticed, you know. And maybe it's just because I'm such a strong advocate of sharing information and putting things out there for other people to look at. And maybe it's one of my pet peeves or something like that, you know. Well, you know, that's, um, that's where the, the truth, you know, put it, put it out there in the bright light of day, okay, because right. under the scrutiny of bright light, the truth will come out, period. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the people that are secretive that try to keep things to themselves. That You don't know if they're being honest or if they're just trying to be, you know, a bunch of scammers or, or what the gig is. And, it, and it, it can be frustrating. I mean, there's people like that in every walk of life and every endeavor, you know, and it's frustrating of course. sometimes. So, right, um, right. when – I was going to ask you something brilliant. <laughs> I just forgot. Well, I'm sure I had some sort of nonsensical dumb answer. It started answer off with the word "win." Um, oh golly, gee, Willikers, it'll come to me here in a second. Um, Don't worry. Oh no, no. Here, here's what it is. In, in your opinion, what is the most common sound that these creatures make that people would mistake for something else? Is it a whistle? Oh. Is it is it a coyote type sound? And you guys say the word coyote, and I, you know, you say that to anybody in the state of Kansas, they're going to look at you like you just got dropped off a of Looney Tunes because it's pronounced coyote here, the east. Yeah, side. well, it's a Spanish word for coyote. You know, coyote. It's really what it is if you want to get down to it. And I do speak Spanish, so okay. Um, but I think it all don't go, don't on go bilingual on me, okay? That's just that's right. <laughs> okay, no problem. All right. Um, so you, the, the sounds that. You know, I'm going to turn that question a little bit. I'll answer it in a minute. But I'm going to say this. The most common noise in the woods that people misidentify as Bigfoot, which is not your question, I understand. I'm turning it around a little bit, is a barred owl. Um, Barred owls make a huge variety of vocalizations, including sounds that sound every bit like monkeys chattering back and forth to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, as far as Bigfoot's making sounds that are probably misconstrued as something else, um... It might be just simply knocking because that could be just taken as anything, like a, a tree, you know, banging it against each other or whatever, wind or something like that. Um, but I would say sometimes they sound a little like coyotes, especially since I do think that Bigfoots and coyotes are very often found in the same place. Um, and there might even be some sort of symbiotic relationship between the two, like perhaps coyotes are, are uh, scavenging off Bigfoot kills or even vice versa for that matter. We don't know but they do seem to run together at least at some time. So I would say that probably coyotes um, are, are are a real good candidate for um, sometimes Bigfoots make noise, noises that sound a lot like them, um, and vice versa. I might add. I'm certain I've been fooled in the past, you know. Uh, but really the most compelling Bigfoot vocalizations that I've heard sound like big, giant men yelling nonsense in the woods where you're darn sure nobody is. Okay. Yeah, those are the most compelling sounds. Um, but, yeah, I guess All right. would be the short answer. Question for you. Have you ever heard of these things? 
This is going to get weird. Um, big meadowy areas, okay? A um, lot of thatch type grass, high grass, low grass. It's it's pretty compact. I mean, it's pretty pretty heavily grassy, okay? Not like a meadow where cattle have been at. It's like a, a meadow in the middle of the woods, and there's a lot of a lot of trees around it. But um, it's soft, sandy soil, and there's a ton of rodents that live in this stuff. Okay, um, have these things been known to get in there and, and grab handfuls of of uh, like little voles and moles and field mice and you know rats and stuff like that that live in this stuff and eat those? Yes. Um, now maybe not in that exact environment. I'm not sure how easy they'd be to catch in that environment. But uh, there's a real famous sighting that happened in 1967 um, above uh, Fish Creek um, off the Clackamas River down here where I live. A guy named Glenn Thomas um, saw some Sasquatches digging these, uh, like picking up big rocks out of a, um, um, a tailless slope. You know, it's those rocky sort of slopes with rocks about the size of your head or bigger. Uh-huh. Um, they were seen lifting up these rocks and piling them, apparently going after hibernating ground squirrels at the time. Uh, so that was a real famous sighting that happened, you know, just literally an hour and a half from my doorstep um, of them going after rodents. And also in New Mexico, uh, the Native Americans on, I think, it was, I think it was the Hickorya Reservation, but I could be wrong about that, um, reported to some friends of mine um, about the Bigfoots building up rock cairns, like piles of rocks. And they were hypothesizing that during the wintertime, these would collect rodents. And then it's just a matter of tearing apart those rock piles to get yummy little tasty rodents. Um, hmm. But that that was reported by Native Americans. Um, so there's there seems to be some logical truth to that as well. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what they were hypothesizing. It seems reasonable. Okay. But yeah, I, I think that Bigfoots would eat whatever they can catch. Um, okay. Especially well, you said that about little yummies like this, rats. This kind of place where I'm talking about, um, it, it's extremely common to, to sit there a, on a winter afternoon and watch these coyotes work through this field and, I mean, jump up and pounce, and they'll come out with a, a mouthful of ground squirrel or vole or field rat or whatever. Um, <clears throat> they don't have to hunt very long before they're done, you know. Yeah. And when you walk across this thing, it's like you're walking on a plowed field because there's so many tunnels going through there, you know, and I was just curious mm-hmm. if, if you'd ever heard anything like that. So, I think it and, sounds very reasonable. Um, I'm not sure what sort of facilities Bigfoots would have to locate them, um, whereas, like, coyotes have an amazing sense of smell. Um, Sasquatches apparently don't, based on their anatomy and the fact that other great apes don't have a, an amazing sense of smell. Um, and uh, owls can hear things underground. Um, I'm not sure if Bigfoots can hear things underground or not. Maybe they can. But I, I'm not sure how easy it would be for them to catch little grubbies like that. Right. Remember, them like with Sasquatches, as well as every other biological creature, it's a matter of expending fewer calories than you obtain from a meal. Right. Well, the coyotes, if you watch them hunt, what they'll do is they'll, they'll they'll walk into the field and they'll stand there and they'll stare straight down with their ears perked up. So they're listening and they're also feeling the vibrations with their feet of these things running around underneath the snow and the little tunnels underneath them. And then all of a sudden they just kind of jump up and they pounce straight down and they grab it. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes they come up with a mouthful of nothing. Other times they got something in their mouth that's kicking and dangling. You know, so. Yeah, I- I, I wouldn't was, I was just curious. I had someone tell me a story not too long ago about something similar to that, and they were watching what they thought was a hog, and it stood up when they realized that they were sitting there being watched. It stood up and walked off rather quickly, and um, this guy and his son just basically freaked. 
you know, they yeah. it was kind of one of those deals. Anyway, they they kind of called me and talked to me about that after our show the last time, and uh, I told him maybe he should give you a call. And apparently, since you hadn't heard it, that's why I asked him the way I did. He hadn't called you. So, oh. Anyway. Oh, I don't remember hearing it, but gosh, you the, the number of emails I get is staggering. It, um, so it, they might have told me, and I might have just forgotten about it, because that was a while ago now, too. Okay. Well, um, any any exciting things coming up in, in the very near future? I mean, there was a vicious rumor that you guys were going to be coming to Kansas. Can you shed any light on that? Um, there was some talk about maybe visiting your part of the country. I'm not sure if that ever panned out or not. Um, I don't. I'm not really one of those per- people that look, looks ahead too far, um, because this is the kind of gig where uh, things change last minute, and more importantly for me, it's kind of the kind of gig where I show up. Like they tell me to be at a certain place at a certain time, and then everybody else kind of ushers me around and makes sure that I get things done. Um, <laughs> you know, which is kind of nice. It alleviates me of a lot of responsibility, which I, I, I do enjoy. Um, but. There, there were, I think that we're going to be headed back to the Midwest at some point in this next run, but I'm not exactly sure where. Okay. Well, for some strange reason, you ever find yourself within a couple hundred miles of Wichita, give me a call and we'll we'll get together for a beer and a burger or something. Oh, fantastic. You I still eat burgers, right? Things. Absolutely. You still eat beer, right? Absolutely. All right. Hey, question for you. When you guys were over there, I think it was in Kentucky, those folks were doing that big old barbecue and there was a little bit of homebrew there, Okay. And they have mm-hmm. reports of these things coming up to the house. Why didn't you guys Correct. just stay there? You know, that's one of the most common questions that's asked. Like, if you have action, why don't you just stay there? And the answer is a production schedule. Um, basically, we're we're bigfooting on somebody else's dime, and there's a tremendous amount of money put into each episode, and there's a schedule that we have to adhere to. Um, that particular night was the last night investigation, which means that the next day – um, was pickup day, and then the day after that was travel day, um, because there was a certain routine that we that we go through. Um, so that particular night, oddly enough, Bobo did stay that night. There was stuff happening there. Bobo stayed the night with a couple other people, and then drove back the next morning to be responsible and, and do our pickups, as we call them, the things that we had didn't shoot throughout the week that we need to do before we leave. Right. Um, so a lot happens behind the scenes that never makes the air because we're making a TV show, and uh, if it doesn't happen on camera, it doesn't happen for the TV show. The fact that Bobo stayed there overnight, you know, nobody knows about because it didn't, wasn't on air. Um, the fact and you that said they had some experiences. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, actually, a guy named Sean, who's one of our producers saw a very large figure through the thermal imager that night while we were out banging trees and yelling at another part of that property. He saw a very large seeming, he might have seen a Bigfoot, basically, through the thermal imager that night, um, which is why Bobo stayed uh, at, at the cabin that night with those people. Um, but again, that, none of that makes the show because it didn't happen on camera. TV is a weird world. It's, that it's, would it's be like very, one of the places very I'd world. want to go back to, you know? Yeah, but there's and places like that everywhere. Is the thing. I know, but they have a grill, okay, dude. They got a yeah, grill. Yeah, they, they do have a grill. They make moonshine. So, <laughs> yeah. Show up there with a couple buckets of ribs and chicken, and I'm going to be a house guest for a while. <laughs> uh, anyway. you know, I was just in Missouri. I got. To, I was just in St. Louis, and I, I got to say the the barbecue there was ridiculous. Oh yeah, I'll tell you what. St. Louis, Kansas City, Oklahoma City, Memphis. 
Oh Lord, they're you know you just make the big barbecue tour, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. People, First, people out east know what they're doing, and and you get you get around too much of that stuff, you look like Bobo in about oh six to eight months. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Two years ago, he weighed one hundred and fifty. Oh no, I'm just kidding. He didn't. <laughs> he hadn't weighed one hundred and fifty pounds since he was in fifth grade. Anyway, yeah, it's been a little while, I think. <laughs> he's a big boy. Anyway, well, Cliff, I tell you what, we're about ready at the end of our run here. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Um, oh, my pleasure. I want I want to wish you the best of luck in, in this next cluster gang group, whatever we called it. And um, I hope I hope you guys have continued success in this, and I hope something really good comes of this for you guys. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it, and also appreciate you having me on again. Um, well, I, I I want to be accessible to everybody. Uh, I'm no celebrity. I'm just a big footer that happens to do it on TV. Well, I tell you what, I enjoy the show. I enjoy watching you guys interact with each other, and, and I especially enjoy the moments that I can just imagine that somebody's biting their tongue. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, if I could just reach across there and smack you. Has it ever gotten to that point, ever? Oh, yeah. I just wanted to sure. off and pop somebody. Um, I'm not a violent person, but, like, sometimes you just want to just, like, my jaw hits the ground, and I go, Really? It just no matter, and that's from all the cast members, of course. And right. we're we're just one big dysfunctional family crowded together. So it's it's kind of crazy sometimes, and we all need breaks and stuff. Right. Um, but sometimes it's just it's just ridiculous. Well, it's been a, it's been a great experience so far, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, things are going very well. Uh, lots of interesting opportunities are opening up. Um, I've met great people all throughout the country. I've learned a tremendous amount about my favorite species of the planet. Um, I've gotten to go places and do things that very few people ever get to go or do, you know. Um, it's I could complain about it, but again, like I said earlier, what do I really want to spend my energy on? Um, yeah. It's been a crazy, fantastic trip, and it'll be well, over soon enough. Think of all the so things you've gotten to, to see it. in the last three years. It's amazing. You know what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... You've been to Sumatra, you've been to Australia, you've been, you know, more states in the Union. As a private individual, you never could have even dreamed of making those kind of trips. Just the finances yeah. alone as a teacher, you'd have to take up bank robbing as a hobby, okay? Yeah, um, exactly. So that's just, you know, that's cool. I mean, I don't, you know, the, the, just the opportunities you've had to travel and meet people, that, that in and of itself is, is uh, something pretty cool. You know, even if you never do find the big guy, you know, um, you've had a lot of great experiences, and that's yeah. And that's that's for me, it's not about the end game. It's not about finding one or proving they're real. I know they're real. I don't have to. My my gig is learning about them, and and I've gotten more knowledge about the Sasquatches than I ever have dreamt by this opportunity. I'm extremely lucky, and I have so much more to learn. And we nobody knows hardly anything about these things, and they're they're continually blowing my mind. That's cool. Well, maybe someday you'll be able to sit down and put it all into a book, you know. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'm kind of toying around with something like that right kind, now. Kind of like, kind of like um, the Hobbit, an unexpected journey, you know, kind of a deal. <laughs> <right>? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, well, you guys have a good one. Uh, best of luck to you for the remainder of the season, and uh, I look forward to seeing the rest of the shows. And um, maybe I'd like to get some of your other uh, show hosts on sometime. But they seem to be rather, uh, well, they're about as uh, evasive as the Bigfoot. So, yeah, yeah, they're, they're not huge fans of doing stuff like this. Um, but I, I don't know if you ask nice and you know get lucky, maybe you can rope one of them in on it. 
Yeah, well, you know what? Do me a favor. When when you see Bobo, tell him I watched that little clip with him and that uh, clown Conan. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I don't know how he kept from clocking him. That would have been... Uh, I don't know much about that. It seems like he had a good time, and um, and uh, that's, that was a neat opportunity for Bobo. And you know, and it turns out Bobo's parents, I think, know his parents, Conan's parents. So they or they were both at a wedding at some point because of some okay. mutual acquaintances, and they had a lot to talk about and stuff. But well, it just seems like he was making fun of him, you know, at his expense. But you know, eh, that happened. Whatever. It wasn't as bad as South Park, so I think anything better than South Park is going to be pretty good for him nowadays. South Park did it. Did you guys have an episode on there? Oh, yeah, yeah. We had an episode. It was very, very funny. But they made Bo- Bobo look like an idiot. Um, and Bobo's complaint was that not only did they make him look stupid, they made him as short as I am. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that's just crazy. <laughs> yeah. He was deeply insulted because, like, Eric Hartman's somewhat of an idol for Bobo. Um, uh-huh. And then, so he loved South Park, and the fact that they tore him apart, I think, actually kind of hurt his feelings. And they made me look like a short idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but really, why is short first on that one, Bobo? That's crazy. What? Instead of a big idiot, they made you look like a short idiot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, made me look my. as short as you, Cliff. So I guess I'm gonna have to. I'm not a big fan of South Park. I, I, it's. I've seen some of them. They're kind of funny sometimes, but they're completely irreverent, you know. And oh yeah, and my son, Absolutely. my son kind of gets into him, and is like, his mom walks through the room. She goes, "Turn that off," you know. Or, <laughs> um, or, or the new one that he likes is that Tosh Point Have you ever seen that? Oh yeah, we get heckled on that sometimes. Oh my god, that guy, that guy. Is and the just... soup, the soup's big fans of us as well. Oh lord. Okay, that's just way too much weirdness there. So anyway. All yeah, right, check man. out the South Park one. It's pretty amusing. I mean, it, it, it is irreverent and not for a 10-year-old boy um, like Hunter or however old Hunter is. But, um, but yeah, check it out. It is pretty amusing. He's, and and for me, it's a great honor. So he was jaded. Oh, He's done. So. Oh, really? Yeah, well, he, he would love it then. But yeah, <laughs> it was an honor for me to be depicted as a South Park character because I've always identified myself pretty well with Butters. Um, but I don't need to identify with any of them because now Cliff is actually a South Park character. So... It's kind of cool. Which who who's the one that gets killed every episode? Kenny. <laughs> he must be cyborg, dude, because he keeps coming back. Anyway, okay. Well, yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and we're going to sign off here, and we're going to do this again. Maybe I don't know after a couple more clusters or groups or. Yeah, sure. You, you know what? You know how to get a hold of me whenever you want me back. I'm happy to. All right, bud. I appreciate it very much, Cliff. Okay. You have a great. All right, evening, Kelly. Man. You have a good one. Thank you. Good yeah, night. Hey, have a good Christmas, okay? Thank you. I will. All right. Thanks. Good night. Bye-bye. Um, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Cliff Berrickman with uh, Finding Bigfoot. He's one of the co-hosts on there. Um, great guy. I mean, seriously, um, he was on about a year and a half ago, uh, right after the first season aired, and, um, you know, he was a really nice guy then, a lot of information. And tonight's thing was just kind of, kind of just, you know, chatting, yakking, all right? Um, there's a lot of people in the industry that, frankly, uh, they're not very approachable. You know, um, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'm close not on the air anymore. But, you know, he's a very approachable individual. Um, I don't have to go through hoops to to get to talk to him or chat with him or whatever. Um, a lot of those people are, even when they know you, okay. And um, just 
throw down the gauntlet here. Somebody from Duck Commander want to give me a call. I'd like to talk to you guys again. There was a time when I'd call you and we'd have a chat. Now it doesn't seem to happen anymore. So anyway, um, great show. I appreciate you guys listening in tonight. Uh, there was a lot of new folks on here. Um, I know this is, like I said, this is kind of a departure from what I normally do. But, you know, that's what I am. I just do things what I want to do. That's why it's called Kelly Outdoors instead of somebody else's outdoors. So anyway, um, the next couple of weeks we'll be back to the hunting and the fishing and duck call making and uh, decoy guys and contest callers and, and all kinds of stuff. So we'll have more of these kind of shows in the future too. So anyway, it's going to be a great season this next year, or it's a great season right now. Um, I'm just saying after the first year it's going to be stepped up several notches, and I hope you guys are ready for it because it's going to get going. So anyway, I want to say thank you to everybody out there, the listeners. I want to say thank you to my sponsors. That's the Duck Hunters Refuge, Duck Hunting Chat, uh, CallingDucks.com, um, Kelly Outdoors, and, of course, me, Kelly's Calls. So, oh, and Caller Supply. There you go, Caller Supply. All right, guys, thanks a lot. God bless, take care, and we will talk to you next week.